This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. Our guest today is Emily Chang. Emily, thank you for being today. Thank you for having me. So Emily, this should be a softball question for you. <laughs> Okay. Talk about your love for backpacking. Oh, gosh. Okay, that's a great one. Um, so I didn't start backpacking until I became a travel nurse five years ago. And I met a travel nurse uh, that I had worked with, and I that was something I always wanted to do. And she took me on a six-day backpacking trip to Mammoth Lakes in California. And I completely fell in love with it. And then when I came here, obviously, this is one of the <laughs> meccas. So I really, really got into it. And uh, it's one of my happy places. So backpack and hike, is that like kind of like the same thing or is there a difference in that? Different. Um, so hiking is more of like you take a day pack, you go into the mountains for a couple of miles, come out backpacking, you have everything on your back and then you take it into the mountains and you set up camp and then, you know, stay for a couple of nights or one night, whatever it may be, but you take everything with you. So what's the longest you've been like camping in the woods, so to speak? Six days. Six days? Six days, five nights. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's I love impressive. It. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, what's been your favorite place to backpack so far? Mm. Oh, hard to well, I would say here, Jade and Marmot Lake is probably my favorite. The lakes are, you know, alpine lakes that are milky blue and super beautiful. And you can actually go up into the glacier and go into another lake. It's just unreal. And it's not permitted either. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's been like the most dangerous place? Most dangerous place. Like you want to scare for your life, you're like, okay, I hear lions and bears and animals yeah. and like I mean honestly and they're and they're, they're kinda close. Totally. <laughs> I mean, anywhere you're going in the backcountry, it's going to be dangerous. Um, I mean, I think I'm I'm definitely, I've only seen a baby bear and a mama cub from far away on my first backpacking trip, but I actually haven't seen any out here in Washington. Okay. So, um, but, you know, obviously when you're in the backcountry, everything's out there. I just haven't seen much And you it. go by yourself? You go with friends? Both. So Both. I have done it by myself, which my mom does not love. But I'm sure she do doesn't. I'm sure she doesn't. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I usually have bear spray. I have a knife with me and... Um, kind of just reading reports, of course, before I go as well, just to make sure there hasn't been like recent sightings of anything that's dangerous. Um, but I'll, I'll do a mix of both. And you'd like, I guess you'd take, take like some kind of satellite phone with you too. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I have a little, um, a, a little like network phone that I get to have on my backpack and I can text from it and I could text from my phone as well and send SOS if I needed help. So like, can you go over yourself? Like, suppose you see somewhere else a couple miles away, you're mm-hmm. like, you like, Go to him as, hey, fellow backpacker, let's hang out. You're like, oh, yeah. Or oh, you're like, okay, that might be a weird person <laughs> trying to do bad things. Let me, let me disappear. Um, it's a mix. I mean, I have never encountered anyone that's just, weird on the backcountry. As long as you, the vibe you get from them. Yeah, exactly. And I think for the most part, I mean, I honestly feel like there's more risk for danger in a city than oh, yeah, there is no in doubt. the backcountry, right? Who's no going to like go 20 miles in and, yeah. and like go hurt people, you know? Yeah. I mean, not saying that it can't be possible, yeah. but I'm sure there's people out there like in the middle of nowhere, like in the Ozarks who's been there for 20 years and, sure. you know, praise on people, but that's like a one okay. in a million chance. And then yeah. this is bad to say, but if it happens to you, 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 you Probably an unlucky person, right? I mean. Exactly. That's probably just like wrong time, wrong place. But yeah. for the most part, you know, like another fellow backpacker is just trying to go disconnect. From... And that's why you take your knife, right? Yeah, so exactly. Slice them up real fast. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> Hopefully never encounter that experience. But yeah, you got to be prepared. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so when you go backpack, it's like you like hike all day long, sleep all night long. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Um. So usually, I mean, depending on how long I'm going to hike. I mean, I've hiked anything from maybe only five miles a day to up to probably like 15 miles a day. 
um, to 20 miles a day and and you like hike to usually wherever you're going to camp. So whether that's next to a lake or in the forest or whatever it may be. Um, my favorite thing with backpacking is that you can only do one thing at a time and living in modern society when obviously we're always, you know, doing a thousand things at one time, multitasking, you can only focus on one thing at a time. So whether that's walking and hiking or you're making dinner or you're going for a swim, you only do one thing at a time. And monotasking is actually one of my favorite things to do that we don't get to do much anymore. Um, but yeah, it's the best. And what do you do for food? Like you bring your own food, you, you, you like, you do the, the, the hunter thing and, and, and slay a, a deer out there, you know, <laughs> cook it up, go fishing, what do you do? I wish I was that talented. No, not, not to that point yet. But yeah, usually I'm bringing dehydrated foods uh-huh. or, um, I mean, if it's a short backpacking trip, I like to bring more luxuries, so heavier foods. So I'll bring like vegetables or fruits or whatever it may be that I can, you know, cook up or eat raw. But, you know, you definitely, of course, you're bringing everything on your back. So you got to yeah. be mindful of weight. Um, so usually dehydrated meals. Um, there's actually something that I really discovered the last few years called a ramen bomb and it's ramen with like dehydrated mashed potatoes and you put it together. Uh It sounds very unique and weird and could be disgusting, but I tried it and it's like one of my favorite things to make. Nice. And I'm guessing like, do you like have to use a different sleeping bag or different equipment depending on the weather? Um, yeah. I mean, depending on, you know, what the weather is, there's definitely, you know, each um, what's called sleeping pad and also the sleeping bag is to a certain rating um, of degrees. So I've slept in slept in uh, probably the lowest of 25 degrees. Okay. Um, but you obviously have to be prepared with what you're wearing and yeah. the gear that you bring. But yeah. Do you ever wake up in the morning and oh crap, there's like 10 inches of snow around me? <laughs> <laughs> um, not 10 inches, maybe like five inches okay. of snow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is there a place you haven't been backpacking yet that you want to go, like your bucket list backpacking place? Tons. Um, but mostly Patagonia. Like, I want to okay. go to Argentina and Chile. Okay. That's my dream trip to go out there. Nice. So, what, mm-hmm. when's your next backpacking trip? Gosh, it probably won't be for a while. Probably not until, like, next next summer. Next summer. Mm-hmm. And do you, like, have a favorite season? Like, you prefer going the winter or the summertime? I'm more of a summertime. I mean, I can do wintertime, but you just need so much more gear. And I would yeah. not go alone either. It's, like, yeah. way higher, high risk. Um, especially with like avalanche, depending yeah. on where you are. So definitely prefer summertime. And so when you go by yourself, mm-hmm. is that because you want to or because you can't convince your friends to go with you that weekend? Oh, it's usually a personal choice. Yeah. Because okay. sometimes, sometimes you just need alone time. And I'm, yeah. I'm ambiverted. So I'm both extroverted and introverted, but I lean a little bit more on the introverted side. And the backcountry and like the outdoors, it's just, it's just a special place for me yeah. to just like be with myself when, again, like we live in such a busy society and we don't get that quiet time. So. And you like get into like the spiritual stuff, like meditation and stuff like that. Oh, and yeah. Like a long time, like yes. why do we exist out here? What's the world doing <laughs> to me? All that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. I love existential questions and yeah, getting yeah, deep. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's like my, I like love personal growth and all that stuff. And so, I mean, I can tap into that stuff here, um, but it's much better when I'm connected with nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. like. Is there, like, what's the best place in this area to go if you just, like, want to go out for a night and look at the stars, right? Is there a favorite yeah. place for that? Oh, I would say probably either the Olympics or the North Cascades. Okay. My favorite. Definitely out, you know, you got to be outside of major cities. Yeah. So, yeah. The next, stand-up paddle boarding. Yeah. I've always heard that's actually quite difficult. I've heard, like, uh-huh. people, like, actually, like, pull calf muscles doing that because, <laughs> you know. Yep, is yep. Is that true? Um, well, the first time I paddleboarded was in, I was visiting a friend in Oahu in Hawaii and she was like, oh, let's just go tandem. I can just like, you know, paddle and you could just sit. And I couldn't even stand up. I was shaking. Yeah, I can imagine. I was, I was like, like, my balance ain't that good. Oh my goodness. 
Um, and I was like, I'm pretty athletic. Why is this so hard? And then that following summer, I actually bought my own and did it up here because I was like, this is something I want to do. And it was actually during the pandemic, too. And I was just trying to figure out a way to get outside and not have to be around people. And it was great to just get out into the water and like be away from people. So slowly learned, um, but it is pretty difficult to stand and and balance. A lot of core work. (laughs) How much does a paddleboard cost? I'm guessing it's pretty expensive. Uh, Anywhere from like 250 to 400, I would say. So it is an investment, but it does pay off. You know, if you're renting, it's probably anywhere from like 40 to 50 for a session. And you go, you know. And what do you do to go paddleboarding at? Yeah, my favorite place is Seward Park. Okay. Um, but I've gone in South Lake Union before and yeah, other like, you know, Silver Park, that's where they have like that, uh, what's it called? The, man, they have thinking Silver Park, I can't remember, it's like this mm-hmm. national, um, not a museum, but like a wildlife park there or something. There's I don't something know there. if there is. If There's something there. Yeah, I can't think is. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's super the Aud- beautiful. The Audubon Society's there. That's what oh, the Audubon cool. Society's there. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful because you get to see Mount Rainier, um, the Homa uh, is like a, what I like to refer to her as, but you yeah. can see it's so clear there and there's you know, two sides to the water. So there's like a boat side where all the boats are. And then there's the more open water um, part where people go paddleboard, they go swimming, they, you know, do whatever they want there. And when you do your meditation stuff, is it like you listen to an app, you have like a, a pre-playlist or you just like yeah. meditate on your own with your own mind? Totally. So I've been meditating for probably four to five years now, um, pretty consistently. I do it almost every single morning, um, but I use an app called Calm. Okay, I have um, that. It's my favorite. I do the daily, well, I do two things. So I either do the daily Calm and or the daily J, um, but I'm actually trying to do more long-term just sitting. Um, and I'm actually going to gift myself a silent meditation retreat in okay. in April and sit for 10 days. And it'll be really hard, but oh, wow. I uh, really want to deepen my spiritual and meditation practice. So, so what made you start meditation? Yeah. Um, you know, I've just was like constantly hearing about it, and especially with like people who do entrepreneurship and startup and stuff. Um, and just like people who do personal development, they were just saying how helpful meditation is to their well-being. And I was like, all right. I mean, people keep talking about it. Why is it so great? Yeah. Most like, you know, in order to be a successful entrepreneur, you got to be a meditating, meditating person, right? Yeah, exactly. And I was like, let me just try this and just sit. And I think that's the thing with meditation is that it's obviously not something that's concrete. Um, that you can see, but you can feel it like physiologically, whether that's like mind, body, spirit. And um, I think there's something really powerful to be really connected with yourself because how often do we just wake up, look at our phones, check our emails? Oh, all the time. Yeah. yeah. And it just I, I, yeah, is. Yeah, I do that all the time. I suck at that. Same. And it just is a constant practice. And I think the thing with meditation and, and with yoga practice too is like there's no end destination. This is just a practice every day. It's not about being perfect. Some days you'll sit, you'll be restless and thinking about your to-do list and whatever else, and you'll be pulled in a thousand ways. Or sometimes you sit and you feel really connected with yourself and you're like, wow, this is like an experience I never processed. Or maybe this is a thought I never thought about, or this is an emotion that I didn't like give it space yet. So I really just, I'm very passionate about meditation. I think so it's very you might not know this, but why do most people meditate in the morning versus midday? And like you always hmm. hear people say, I wake up meditate, right? You know, everybody sure. says, I meditate right before bed. I mean, I do think people meditate before, you know, I mean, you can meditate obviously whenever. I just feel like the reason why people meditate first thing in the morning is just like set the foundation um, and check in with themselves before they check in with the world. I really feel like that's, you know, setting the the like grounded foundation that you need um, before you start your day. I mean, I, I at least from hearing from tons of people who meditate. So talk more about this 10-day meditation thing. You're doing. Oh, gosh. That, that, sounds, yeah. that sounds kind of extreme. I, I got to be honest It, with it you, right? really is, yeah. Now, now, we say 10 days, and not like 10 days, 24-7 hours a day. It's like just 10 days of like 
Um, yeah, I mean, so it's something called Vipassana um, meditation. And it's this, I don't know who started it. I, I need to learn more about the history and things like that. But a lot of people that I follow who meditate um, have done this training before. And they they basically like teach you different aspects of meditation and, and things like that. So it's like a, a group you're going with? So you show up to these meditation centers and there's dozens of them all around the world. There's actually one up or I want to say upstate New York, upstate in Washington. <laughs> and there's like one in Vancouver as well. The one that I'm looking into is like right outside Joshua Tree. Um, and you just apply for it a couple months before and and they accept you. And um, there's ones that are for new meditators, which are the 10 day thing. And then there are ones for return meditators. And um, it's actually for free. And there's no financial obligation. It's just, um, I guess the only expectation is that hopefully you come back and you get to volunteer and help okay. the host like future ones. And so, um, yeah, I honestly was just like, this sounds very challenging because, you know, I mean, I think there's like a morning meditation, there's a afternoon one and there's an evening one. And then you can't like bring, you know, you're not really doing much activities outside those are, of so that. So there's no work, um, no, no there's media, like, no. So they take your phones, they take your screens. Um, I can't even bring my journal to like journal because I'm, I also like, like to, you know, if you're reflecting on the experience or whatever, you kind of just, you know, there's no exercising. You can, there's like paths or like, uh, I think there's trails on the different meditation retreats, but, um, yeah, it's like pretty wild. And, you know, there, there's meals there. So there's three meals there. And I think there's packs or whatever. Um, but it's all vegan and veg, you know, plant-based and which I am anyway. So that's not a big deal to me, but it's pretty wild to think that, um, you know, I don't know how big the groups are, but I, I would assume probably not most like 20 to 30, okay. but you're around other people who are doing the same thing, but you're not like, communicating with them. You know, what? you could probably like look at them and whatnot, but you're not like, you know, sign languaging anything to them <laughs> or like char playing charades or anything like that. Um, as far as like the research that I've done, which is pretty wild. So I mean, I'm an introvert. I don't know if I go 10 days without talking to no one. <laughs> yeah. That's freaking insane. I don't know. It'll be very interesting. Um, and obviously, I don't know. Everyone who's going has their intention of like deepening their meditation practice. So I think it'll be really interesting to kind of just have this like challenging experience. And, of, and like, when is this? When are you doing this? I'm, I'm doing it. So my birthday is April 17. I'm doing it like a couple of days before for okay. 10 days. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when you meditate, Mm. what do you besides calm do you like do you use any of the tools like you like drink tea or like like anything else or like you know take anything yeah. or like what do you use yeah. to help you meditate so i do think that the the general um i guess like the the very um typical sense of meditation is that you're closing your eyes and sitting down right but i also think there's like physical meditations there's different different types of meditation so like you said, tea, I think that's like such a great moment. Just to, even if you don't drink tea, if you're drinking your coffee, like being mindful with that moment, right? Versus like drinking your coffee, checking your emails, like doing a thousand other things. It's just like being present with it. And I think that's what's so beautiful about meditation. And um, definitely when I'm, you know, doing physical practice, whether that's yoga or just working out, like how can I be in this moment rather than like thinking about the past or thinking about the future? And I think that's, that's meditation yeah. as a whole is just how can you be here in this present moment um and instead of like thinking okay. um, and, and being elsewhere so i have a friend he does those um i can't say this word to save my life it's the um it's not karasaki but it's uh it's the thing aaron Rodgers did the football player mm. it's, uh, it's like a psychedelic thing oh um, it's not ayahuasca that's it yeah oh it's that i, I, I can never say that word to save my life oh yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's all good yeah is that, yeah, like, so is, that like, is that is that like meditation too 
Hmm, that's a good question. I, I I do think there's a component with, you know, like psychedelics with helping you dive deeper into your your inner self. I mean, depending on each person has different walks of life, different blocks, different traumas, whatever it may be. Um, I, I do think for some people it might be harder for them to tap into themselves or they've been have, you know, depending on how not even long their experiences have been in their life, maybe they're, they've just, just been so far removed from themselves mm-hmm. that it can be just so much harder to get back to yourself. Yeah. Um, so I do think sometimes psychedelics, if used with intention and responsibility, and if, you know, you're in a guided group or with um, a shaman or something like that, they can help you retap back into yourself with things that you've probably like suppressed yeah. too much. Um, but everyone's, you know, I don't think psychedelics is for everybody. I do. I, I would argue that meditation, I think in some sense could be applied to every person, maybe not traditionally in yeah. like sitting in stillness, but I do feel like everybody can adopt some sort of mindfulness into their, their day. And I do think it could positively impact their well-being. Um, but yeah, psychedelics are, are an interesting topic. I'm not too well-versed. I mean, I did um, read that book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, who's like one of the, you know, yeah. big people with it. Yeah. And I'm a big proponent of, um, you know, psilocybin uh, with, I've personally used it to help me with my mental health. But you know, I think everyone has to do their own research. And, and it's crazy how many people use that, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think in the media and and the world of law, oh, it's, it's taboo, don't do it. Totally. You're going you're gonna to fry your brain. Yeah. But I know so many people doing that. Like, and they, yeah. no one's like having a bad trip, you know? Totally. I mean, there's definitely been experiences, right? But if you compare it to other substances that have been normalized, like alcohol or, you know, like cocaine or meth, there's oh, yeah. definitely way Fentanyl, more higher yeah. occurrences yeah. of yeah negative experiences and there are with some psychedelics especially if you're using them in a controlled setting or if, you know what you're doing um is is helping you out do you remember this it happened a couple of months ago with this um this guy who was an employee at alaska airlines mm. supposedly he got on the plane from everett to portland and supposedly he had tried to take the plane over right and try to crash oh. right and he tried wow. to and he tried to say because he was a magic magic mushrooms right but then he said, yeah, I, was, I took magic mushrooms three days ago. <laughs> and everyone who knows about it, like, dude, you're, you're a fucking liar. Yeah, that is a lie. Yeah. I mean, the, three days ago? Yeah. Even if you did it right then, no one's going to do that, right? But I was three days say, ago? No, yeah. absolutely so, not. So, I mean, of course, the, the media, like NBC News, oh my sure. God, this is so bad. This is why, blah, blah, blah. But everyone, like, knows something about it. Like, yeah, this is bullshit. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I mean, news in general, they amplify, like, the negative, like, nuances, right? Mm-hmm. They'll never say, like, oh, this is how many thousands of people microdosing mushrooms has helped you know unless it's like this breakthrough research and i do think you know it is slowly getting decriminalized and just historically i think now more than ever like people are trying to see like what alternatives there are to antidepressants anti-anxiety meds um clearly a lot of um pharmacology has been over abused oh yeah and so i think um i mean i'm a big proponent of trying to doing things more holistically and like magic mushrooms are they're like an organic matter you know so it's not lab made or anything like that and um and again this is nuances i'm not saying everybody needs to try magic mushrooms or you know psychedelics but you know i i think if you're considering some sort of healing modality i think it is an interesting one yeah so i'm from texas most people don't realize this but every year for like that like seven years, the Texas legislature has like given like $25 million for, wow. for like this research, psychedelic research for yeah. veterans, you know? Yeah. And then um, this is a guy, Governor Perry. He was a governor a long time, like 10, 15 years ago, Rick Perry. Like he puts a C in conservative, right? But okay. he's a big proponent of psychedelics, right? Okay. And so it's like, 
it used to be like a liberal thing. And now I think it's going across the table. Like everyone's yeah. like, okay, this is like, we got to look at this some more. Exactly. And I mean, I think the more like, there needs to be more concrete data and research, oh, yeah, right? No to, to help the skeptics yeah. um, figure that out. It's actually funny because like two years ago, the reason why I dived into magic mushrooms and things like that was because I was in pretty severe depression and generalized, generalized anxiety. And I was waking up in the middle of the night having these panic attacks. And I was like really heavily considering you know, like antidepressants and pharmacology to help me out with that time. And I had an ex-boyfriend that was like, maybe you try like magic mushrooms yeah. and, and microdosing it and see how it works before you, you know, do pharmacology. And it, it did help. It was a slow, it wasn't like a, you know, I take it one time and that's it. It was yeah. like three months and I treated myself on an experiment. I right. actually made a spreadsheet of like how I, my mood beforehand, it did exercise, how was my sleep, you know, and the dosages and things like that. Cause I wanted to see the trends of it. Um, since it's still, and I did tons of research at that time. So it was kind of crazy and saying like, I didn't plan this, but I think you're the fourth great guest I had. Like we talked to talk about psychedelics. Really? Like, yeah. <laughs> like uh, the one I had last time, uh, Yura Lee, she's talking about their, she's, this is a new master of from called Penis Interview. She's going to try, yes. you know. Yep. And there's Turkey Trot and there's all these, yeah, there's a lot of different kinds. And I, again, I don't know too much about yeah. it, but I am like more interested in it. And the, me having a nursing background, there's more and more, um, you know, like clinics nowadays that are helping with PTSD yeah. and, and things like that using um, psychedelics. And there's like, not that ketamine is a psychedelic because it's not. And that's the biggest, one of the biggest like misconceptions with ketamine is that yeah. it's a psychedelic, but it is also another modality to help with PTSD yeah. and depression these days. Another thing I've seen too, you know, with people that do this stuff, it's like people either they like, they're like all in on mushrooms or all in the LSD, right? Sure. I don't know anyone who's like, from my, from my experience, I don't know anyone who does both of them, right? They're like, mm. they're tried mushrooms, but I, I, know, I love LSD or like, I love sure. mushrooms, right? Which is actually, sure. kind of, kind of. That is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's true. Or they are really big proponents of ayahuasca mm. or DMT or whatever yeah. it may be. I mean, I think in the beginning, depending on the person. Yeah, I've heard maybe, DMT is wild as fuck though. Yeah. Um, I've only tried DMT once yeah. and it was a very interesting experience. It's very intense, but I think what I like about DMT is it's very short acting. Yeah. It's only 15 minutes, you know, yeah. you don't need to like allocate That's your the, entire my, day. Yeah, my friend said, yeah, you just, he, <laughs> he has his pin with the stuff. He takes yeah. a hit, you know, he's done. Right. Totally. With all those stuff, man, you had to, you probably got to have a schedule all day long. Exactly. You be pretty much free. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, I don't use like psilocybin as much anymore or anything like that. At that time I was in, you know, a different healing phase. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, at least for me, it's like just part of my healing phase, like for the rest of my life yeah. of like, you know, you try yeah. different modalities depending on where you are in your life. Um, but I think if it's used with intention, I think it, it can be really powerful. So you're, you're like this. So a little while ago, right, I, I took some of that stuff, right? So I looked at, at the calendar. So I, mean, I have nothing going on tomorrow, right? It's like, I think it's sure. November, so I have nothing going on tomorrow, mm -hmm. right? Wake up the next morning, took it and like, oh shit. I look at December 27th. Oh, no. That I had like, like, Six back-to-back -back meetings, oh, so God. it was a very interesting day, to say the least. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I've actually luckily never had to do anything um, that important, yeah. being on mushrooms. <laughs> so I'm just meeting my brain's moving fast. I'm bam, yeah. bam, bam, like, shit. Yeah, <laughs> it was very interesting, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I was like, fuck, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so talk about your journaling. Why is the, so when you say journaling, like, like, a, like just write, write, you write it down with a pen and paper and stuff, you know, like, yep. like your thoughts or your... Dreams and stuff? Yeah. So I actually don't do too much of the dreams, but so I use this journal called Notes to Mindfulness. And one of my favorite creators that I follow um, is really into mindfulness and meditation and journaling. And she created this journal with this company called Intelligent Change. And it basically is a is a guided journal. So some people will do blank journals. I sometimes do, but I do more of the guided journals. And it takes you through like, hey, how are you feeling right now in the moment? 
what are you grateful for? Three things that you're grateful for. Three things that would make your day successful. And um, did you follow through with your morning routine? And then there's like a free text um, part. And um, sometimes I, I do like to journal in the morning because, again, it's just another way to set your foundation. And I, I think even just like gratitude as a practice is so powerful. And that's um, probably one of the most beautiful practices that have been scientifically proven to help with your well-being. And, you know, Oprah will preach it to, yeah. to the day she dies and things like that. And I think it's, you know, it's so easy to practice. But I think there's something really magical about putting pen to paper rather than I'll type notes on my phone and things like that. But the act of writing it down and seeing it out from your brain rather than you just saying it um, is really powerful. And, and I'm sure there's scientific studies around that. But um, I'll usually do it in the daytime, but I'm trying to actually build a habit where at nighttime I dump my brain so that, you know, when our brains are running 100 miles per hour, we expect to just like automatically be able to go to sleep. That's very unrealistic, yeah. right? We like, we need to rev up in the morning and then slow down at nighttime. And many of us like, watch TV or watch shows, yeah. whatever it may be at nighttime. Or check the phone. <laughs> yeah. And we expect to just automatically fall asleep. Yeah. That's the a, switch. Yeah. That's like a very unrealistic expectation for our minds to be going at hundred miles per hour. And so there's something called brain dumping where you'll just like write down all these random thoughts, you know, to do lists, whatever it may be on a piece of paper so that your brain feels like, oh, now I don't have to use that energy to hold on to that thing that I'm thinking about anymore. It's just all on paper tomorrow. I can check it. I can organize it tomorrow. Um, so that's something I've actually been trying to implement as well. And how long have you been doing this? Mm, probably like close to like five, four or five years. Yeah. So, so do you ever go back to like a journal for like 2021? Like and think yourself, oh shit, my mindset was all fucked up back then. Yeah. I mean, I'll definitely look back sometimes. I don't make it a practice to look back on my journals, but I, I have a stack in my room of journals that I've used. And, you know, there's days I'm not like so consistent. I probably journal maybe like three to four times a week. So it's not as consistent as would love it to be just because it's more time consuming. And I would much rather prioritize meditation. But I think what's beautiful about looking back is um, kind of being like, it's like a true Testament timeline of how far you've come as a person. You know, I never look back and I think like, damn, that person was, you know, I never like bring shame <laughs> or guilt to that person. Right. I mostly am just like, wow, that was, that was my mindset at right. that time. You know, it's kind of cool to see yourself in evolution mm -hmm. um in, in like a you know this this is the evidence of that growth right that's like pretty pretty cool <laughs> and is this like personal stuff business stuff or a compilation of everything everything okay everything it could be like you know romantic relationships friendships family stuff um whatever whatever sitting on my heart and sometimes i do need like a question you know i, I listen to a lot of podcasts and and sometimes they pose like a certain topic or a certain question that i'm like yeah i want to reflect on this or or I'm having a conversation with a friend and they bring up something that I'm like, yeah. Or I'm just going through a challenging time or season in my life that I'm trying to figure out um, what to do. And sometimes I'm not even trying to look for an answer. I just want to like hold space for myself, essentially. And you ever let anyone else read these journals? No. No? Not, not, <laughs> even, your not even your mother? I, I mean, I friend. don't even know if she'd be interested in yeah. reading it, you know? I mean, I would probably be open to it, but I guess I, I would just have to, you know, I mean, it's pretty, like, personal, right? So, and, and you plan on doing this, like, the rest of your life? I think so. Here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. Let's suppose you live a long life. Suppose, you know, you... you I'm trying to live to my hundreds. Suppose you live to 100, right? Yeah. <laughs> and please have all these journals, right? Okay. What are you going to do with them? Are you going to have a world, like, hey, hey, someone burn all these. No one can read them. like... Okay. What's your plan for the journals? Like, hmm, not here that's anymore. a good question. I've never um, heard. I've never thought about it, but 
You know, I'd be I open. Mean, you, I mean, you'd be gone, so what does it matter, right? I totally. Mean, um, I mean, listen, I'd be very, you know, open to whether it, like, has to do with business or about personal development or whatever it may be. If people are open to seeing, like, what my journey is like and, like, kind of piecing it all together, yeah. that'd be cool. Or if it went to, you know, my kids or grandkids yeah. or whatever it may be, I'm open to it. Yeah, I'd be interested you're going to go. Probably your grandkids. Your kids might not care because of your kids, but yeah. I think your grandkids, like, especially yeah. generation being like, too cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm open to it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So next, talk talk about traveling. Yeah. You do a lot of that. So travel, well, I guess like to, to make it more specific, like travel nursing or just like traveling just travel, in general? Travel in general. Okay. So I don't travel as much as I used to travel because I, so I was a travel nurse for five years. Um, now I travel more for either business or for leisure um, and having a startup, I don't get to travel as much as I used to, but it's definitely one of my favorite things to do. I mean, I think for most people who... Um, you know, aren't homebodies all the time. They love to explore the world and there's obviously so much to see. And I think there's something really beautiful about immersing yourself in other cultures, even if it's, you know, here in the U S right. Like I just went to, I just came back from Tennessee a couple of days ago and I'd only been to Nashville and I was in Chattanooga and that was a really fun experience to have to see. People don't realize in the United States, every state's different. Every city state's different, you know? Exactly. That's insane. Yeah. And I think that's like the biggest thing is like, we think we need to travel so far to experience something new. Like, even if you're here in Seattle, and you've never been to Leavensworth, go oh, yeah. out there, yeah, you know, exactly right. grow up to Bellingham, yeah. go to Vancouver. Like there's so much Port to Angeles, see. Yeah. Westport. Exactly. So many beautiful places. And I think that's the stigma of like, oh, to travel, you have to like get on a plane or yeah, you have to go on 25 really- hours and go. Yeah. Um, when, you know, your backyard could just be something super beautiful of, of like discovering a new neighborhood or whatever it could be. Um, but yeah, I really feel like traveling helps me to connect with the world at large because I'm learning about new people, new cultures and new ways of thinking and new perspectives that helps me get out of my own way, I feel like. Um, and it helps me to develop more compassion and empathy, which I will argue, I think everybody couldn't use more of that in this world. Right. Um, and so I really love it. Um, I'm itching to go for another international trip. I don't know when I'll be where going you, where to. Where do you want to go to? I mean, my top trip is Patagonia, but I probably okay. won't be able to do that until I exit my business because <laughs> I want to do it for like a couple months. Yeah. Um, but I am, every year I go to the Dominican Republic and I, we actually host a medical volunteer trip there. And it's- Yeah, we're going to talk about that later. Oh, right? we are. So, okay, yeah. perfect. Um, but yeah, I, I'm itching to, you know, discover another country. And I was trying to make it a habit that every at the end of the year I was going to be in a new country because the last two years I did that, um, but unfortunately I won't be able to do that this year. But what, what's um, been some places you've been to? Or like what are your, some of your favorite trap places? Oh, absolutely. So before I started travel nursing, I spent a month in Thailand, and that was the longest time yeah. that I've been in one place. And yeah, Thailand's a great country. Oh, a couple yeah. Of times, yeah. For sure, and I like slow travel too, right? Like I'm not a bucket list traveler where I'm like put my feet in one place and I get to check it off my list. I really want to experience so, so like, you're not, so you're what not, it's like. So you're not like a one and done person. You're like, you want to experience. I really want to be there and have a local experience. I'm not someone that's like, oh, only show me the touristy places. I want to know like where the locals eat, where the locals you want, you hang want, out. You want the street food. Yeah, you want the- absolutely. Let me like, get me in there. I want to feel like, um, yeah, I don't want the Americanized version. I don't want the Western, you know, yeah. type version. Like tell me like the, I want to eat the real foods and the real experiences. And so- um, yeah, that's, that's my type of travel. <laughs> nice. Nice. Mm-hmm. So, um, talk about this med venture camp you're doing in 2024 in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So med venture camp is really, a it's a, it's really a, a project that has been like an extension of my heart. I'm a really big 
component of um, mental health. And I feel like, especially when it comes to traveling healthcare professionals and healthcare professionals in, in general, I feel like it's something that hasn't been talked about a lot and still pretty stigmatized. And I think um, healthcare professionals, you know, we're viewed as heroes, we're viewed as angels um, and all this, you know, stuff and putting us on a pedestal. But then we experience so much death and dying on a regular basis, like so much more than a regular average human. Um, and we're not taught how to process that in a healthy way. You know, a lot of us will use substances to self-medicate. Um, I've been there many, many times and I'm very grateful to have like built experiences where um, and tools in my toolbox now where, um, you know, I, I can process those things in a healthier way. But our camp is really a four day, three night adult summer camp for traveling healthcare professionals to come and really disconnect from modern society, reconnect with themselves, with um, people in the community and really just play like a kid again. I think there's something really magical about playing. I think as adults, we're expected to be bogged down by our roles and responsibilities and we forget how to be like playful and have joy and, you know, do things just to do things and not to have this end goal or outcome or, you know, monetize things, you know, we forget how to like do things just for the fun of it. And so this entire camp is on a lake in Pennsylvania. Um, it's right on the border of, of New York. It's about two hours away from Newark um, airport and people just come and we have so many, like all the sports you can think of. Pick, pickleball is a really big one has <laughs> been popular. Um, and you can go tubing on the lake. There's a huge slide that goes into the lake. We have holistic sessions in the morning, like meditation, sound healing, and it's all taught by traveling healthcare professionals. Um, we try to bridge the gap between the traveling healthcare industry and also clinicians with educating on um, different, you know, industry insights and market insights. And so it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of learning, but a lot of play. Um, at nighttime, we have themed, um, themed nights. So the first night we had a karaoke and everyone came in onesies and pajamas. It was super fun. And then we had a neon night and then we had a disco night as well. And so it's pretty fun to just, our community is very um, go all out. And so uh, it was really fun to just have an experience that wasn't only centered around partying and drinking and was really like centered around like healing. I mean, we had a lot of fun. There was open bars at night. We have that too, but that's not the center of everything. And we also had Camp Olympics is probably my favorite is to like split up the entire camp into four teams and see everyone's competitive side come out and um, camaraderie. And I, I, I love seeing people in their competitive edge. So <laughs> that was really fun. And so Two-part question. Is there a cost for this? And do people have to apply? Like, what's the application process? Yeah. Into this? So there is a cost. Um, it's a ticket cost. So it's all inclusive of your accommodations, all your meals, all our snacks, our open bar, all the experiences, and all the workshops and sessions. So there's a, um, it is $950 um, until the end of January. And then, um, and it doesn't include the transportation to and from. If you're not going to drive onto campus, if you're driving onto campus, that's free. Um, but it's kind of a, a show up and everything's included. You don't need to have your wallet or anything. You just show up and you enjoy the experience. And then your second question was, do you have to apply for it? Anyone's invited to come. We actually have spouses or even friends of people who are not even in the healthcare industry or who are coming. We definitely invite everybody to come because um, I think it could benefit anyone. But the, it, it is catered towards traveling healthcare professionals. But we welcome everybody. So another two-part question. Number okay. one, how many people usually go? And number two, how many people could actually go? Like how many people could actually support? Yeah. So last year we had 125 traveling healthcare professionals come. And then this year we're aiming for anywhere from 175 to 250. And then the campus itself, the reason why we decided to choose this campus was that it can hold up to 1,200 people. So 
a lot of room for growth. Um, a lot, that would be a, a, lot, a lot of a lot logistics. Of yeah, a lot of logistics. And honestly, this team, the reason why we went with this team in Pennsylvania, and shout out to Camp No Counselors and All Away. Um, those are the two companies that host us. Um, they have, uh, th- their staff is comprised of international people who come from all over the world to support us. And the customer service and the hospitality is just out of this world. I mean, we had this instance where we were holding our first session and it started drizzling and started raining. Within five minutes, they had, uh, you know, branded ponchos for everybody and oh, everyone nice. just like sat and they were just having fun with it. And I think that's also a testament to our community with how they just roll with the punches. And that's what I really, really love. And they go just above and beyond to make sure that we feel comfortable. Anything that we need, they're going to do that. And they're just a good time. And, you know, having people like the people who led the, um, led our experience. There was one person from Australia. There was one person from Ireland. Um, so it's people from all across the world. All around it. the world. Okay. And it's just so fun. We actually had one camper go see one of our Australian, um, we call them not non-counselors. Um, and they hung out in Australia together. And so it's just really fun to see people from so all over So I don't know if you track the demographics, but do you find like, you know, like a nurse, like, like junior nurses tend to come more or like nurses like in the business, like 20 years, is like mm. a demographic that comes? Yeah, I would say, I mean, our app in general, our company really caters more to the mid to 20s to probably like mid 40s. Um, but I mean, healthcare professionals obviously are all across the board and we welcome everybody. So, but I think a lot of people, you know, there's definitely some skeptical people who are like, oh, well, I'm like too old for this or whatever, but there is no age to, to be too playful. Right. Like I, I want to invite families to come. I want to invite like whoever wants to come and just like enjoy a weekend with our community. Please come. And how many years yeah. have you been doing this? Um, so we only had one year of doing it this oh, past summer okay. and then we're doing it again next summer in June. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you probably don't know this either, but like how many people from the first year are coming back to the second year? Yeah. So we have about, I would say, 50% of okay. last year coming back this year, which is super exciting. And, you know, that's a testament to what a great time they had. And right now is just the very beginning standing uh, planning um, stages. And we're trying to figure out, like, how do we switch things up so it's not monotonous? And yeah, I mean, it, has to, it, has to be, it has to be some pressure on you, like, up the game, so to speak, right? I oh, mean, absolutely. It has but, to be some kind of pressure on you, like, you know, yeah. outdo yourself from last year. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm always about, like, upping the ante and I'm totally up for the challenge. So I'm excited. All right, next. So there's actually a blog on your website. I won't go through three things. Okay. The one blog was titled nine essential steps to become a traveling healthcare professional, your passport to rewarding career. You like do a, like a quick synopsis on that. Sorry. Can you repeat yourself yeah. again? Yeah. Um, nine essential steps to becoming a traveling healthcare professional, your passport to a rewarding career. Mm, yes. So I think in general, um, traveling healthcare is a very unique, you know, uh, really unique perspective to have and, and pathway in our in our industry because you know most people just think, oh, you're just going to be at a hospital for one one for your entire life. You're just going to have that one job. But I think you know, I think we're seeing with the generational shift. There's a lot of people who value freedom and flexibility, and travel healthcare provides you that opportunity. And I think one of the main ways that people don't really even think about is like, you have to have your finances in check. And I think a lot of times, like the, the sparkly thing with travel healthcare is that you can make anywhere from double to three, almost three times as much as you did in wherever home hospital you were at. I mean, especially like people in the Midwest or the South, you know, it's such a fraction of like what you could be making on the West coast or I mean, bi-coastal really um, where the really big cities are. And I think 
what people don't think about a lot of times is like, how can you leverage your career? How can you leverage this pathway in life to really set yourself up for the life you want to live in the future? Right. Like whatever that may be, whether that means you only want to work half a year or you want to work the entire year, but you want to retire early or you want to have investment properties or whatever it may be. You want to build a side hustle. You want to get out of nursing. You want to support nurses, um, healthcare professionals, whatever it may be. I think um, people don't realize that you can really use this pathway in life to really like shape the future that you want. Um, so I really feel like that is first and foremost, like really important <laughs> to realize. Um, but also what are your goals in doing this? You know, are you only doing this for the monetary reasons? Are you doing this so you can live um, a really non-traditional lifestyle? Are you trying to have new experiences? Are you trying to meet new people? Are you trying to figure out a new home base? Um, I think really figuring out what your intentions are um, with travel healthcare is like really important. And I think that's probably the first step whenever anyone asks me like, oh, I want to, I, I maybe want to consider this pathway. What should I do first? I think figuring out your why is pretty important. Yeah. I have a friend in Texas. She's a nurse. She retired mm-hmm. as a nurse at the VA. Yeah. And I guess she found Great. out about traveling nurses and she started doing traveling nurses. Like she was like, they were like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be retired. Like, no, I can't say so like my kids are gone. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm by myself. Not? Like I can't turn this money down. Yeah. Yeah, that. And then also like she has the opportunity to travel around, right? Like there's tons of people. I think the misconception with travel healthcare and travel nursing is that you have to do it when you're single and you're young. And that is just blatantly not the truth. There's tons of people who do it for the retirement to either they are retired and want to do something. Because I mean, a lot of people when they stop, you know, living there or doing the regular jobs, they don't want to just sit around. Some people do, but some people want to just go out and like explore the world. And so it's a very good way to either fund a retirement or to just do it as you're retiring when you don't need that much money. And maybe you're, you know, funneling this money into generational wealth or whatever, whatever else you want it to do. So I think, I mean, obviously I'm wrong, but I think a lot of people think travel nurses start doing COVID, right? But travel nurses have been way before COVID, correct? Many, many generations. It just had such a big spotlight because of all these, you know, rates and all these like crises of New York City needing people and whatnot and, and whatnot. But yeah, travel nursing has been around for such a long time. And I think that's, as a veteran traveler, I think that's something that we're, we get a little bit um, annoyed by is that it pulled so many people into the industry for possibly the wrong reasons. People were only doing it for the money and, and not realizing that, that that's like 0.1% of the entire, you know, experience of being a travel healthcare professional is sure the money is really great, but like, how can you, you know, build your dream life? How can you, you know, meet new people, have once in a lifetime experiences, really like learn about yourself and about the world at large. Um, and I think people who are only doing it for the money are really missing like such a big component of it. So how, how, is there like a website you go to and it's like, okay, these 10 hospitals, 10 different locations, you're a travel nurse, you apply to it or like how does that process work? Yeah. So there's travel healthcare agencies and these are the middle people between us as clinicians and also the hospital themselves or, or facilities, outpatient facilities. And so these staffing agencies um, will, or rather, let's take it back. The hospital will say, hey, we're going to be down 10 nurses in this unit for the next whatever season for whatever reason. They'll, they'll go to staffing agencies and say, hey, we need this. And I'm obviously breaking this down very simply of like the, the agency will say, okay, we have this many jobs. And then the agency themselves will then there's recruiters and they work with the clinicians themselves and they'll say, hey, if are you interested in going to California, Northern California, in the Bay Area, there's this many assignments that are happening and this is what they're paying. And they'll have this dialogue with um, the clinician, depending on what they're looking for. Um, and 
basically they're trying to be a matchmaker for like their perfect job, right? Um, the price is right. The location is right. The shift is right. The unit is right. Um, but honestly, you know, there's no perfect situation. So there is usually a give or take depending on if you go to a, a high destination place like Oahu or Hawaii, um, or if you're going in the middle of America with maybe the price is really high, but maybe it's not a very desirable place. So it kind of just depends on like what your priorities are and what you're trying to accomplish with travel healthcare. But that's kind of how it works is like, we can't go directly to a hospital um, and, and say like, Hey, I want a job. It's usually through a traveling agency or there's sites as well, where you can like compare and contrast between companies and whatnot, but that's usually how it works. So is it, is it responsibility of the hospital, or the seven HG to make sure this person is actually a qualified nurse? That's it's the job of the, the staffing agency. So okay. they do all our credentialing, they do our onboarding and, you know, they do drug testing and all this stuff. Um, and, and seeing that you have an active license and that, you know, there's no, um, jurisdiction or anything against you and stuff. And so it's their job to, to make sure that we're a qualified candidate for the job. Do doctors travel too, or this is a nurse thing? Yeah, no. So every traveling healthcare professional can, every healthcare professional can actually travel. So okay. doctors and, and, you know, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, it's actually called locum tenens. And so that's specifically for them. And then there's also, it's kind of like locum tenant, travel nursing, and then travel allied and travel therapy. So that's like x-ray techs, um, speech pathologists and, and physical therapists, occupational therapists, like, yeah. And so when you, like someone goes to like a, do the traveling thing, do they usually stay six months, a year or just depends? Yeah. So it can be anywhere from the average is 13 weeks, but with the pandemic, we saw anything from four weeks up to, you know, an entire year. Um, but the average assignment is usually 13 weeks, but it all is like pretty dependent on the facility and what their needs are. I'm guessing like people used to say Airbnbs or something like that, or was it like, was it actually like some kind of travel housing thing going on in different locations? Yeah. So there is, um, you know, we're looking for short-term to mid-term furnished housing, which is very, you know, niche specific. Um, we do do Airbnb. There's also like other websites that also will help to connect Yeah, I'm guessing us. you really can't stay at a luxury hotel at $300 a night. Yeah. I mean, there are some of the, I forgot what they're called, but there's like hotel stays that are more like midterm. Yeah. I think um, they're extended stays. Or yes, whatever. that's what they're called. Yeah, yeah, extended stays. So some people stay in those as well. I think it kind of just depends on like how scrappy you want to be. There's also people who like travel in their RVs or their vans. And so they don't that's, have that's to smart. even worry about that. And so when you get paid is like, I'll make this up, but you pay like, a, we'll say like $100 an hour mm -hmm. plus hotels plus per diem, or you got to take everything out of the money they pay you. Yeah. So I kind of view it as a pie. So the first part of the pie is our hourly rate. So the hourly rate is actually pretty low usually, but that's the only tax part. And then the other two pieces of the pie are the meals and incidentals and also our stipends. So there's a housing stipend and there's the meals and incidentals and all of that is non-tax. And the reason why we get non-tax um, part of our pay is that they, the IRS is assuming that we are being required to travel for our work and we're duplicating our housing expenses in our tax home and also where we're going for work. And so we're paying like double and that's why they're saying like, okay. hey, here's your allowance to go figure out your housing. And obviously the stipend for house like different based on different locations. Correct. Okay. And depending on the job as well, each okay. hospital. Um, we'll give whatever that may be. And even like amongst the different agencies, they will also give different rates sometimes depending on what their overhead is, how big their company is, um, how many people they have to pay out. There's obviously a lot of different um, varieties and, and variables. So there's a website out there that says, you know, you're a travel nurse and I tell you go on the site and there's like 10 hospitals. Is there a site that says like, uh, like this is the best hospital 
don't work here, don't work for Dr. Jones, don't work for XY General, you know, is there something like that out there? Yeah, so actually on our app, we have uh, facility reviews and we have agency reviews too. And so we're really trying to crowdsource all this information firsthand um, and our community can basically contribute that information so that if I'm looking at a job that was presented to me and I'm trying to decide whether I want to apply for it or not, I'm gonna, I can go in this database and see from our community that, hey, is this a place that I do want to work? Or maybe it'll help me set expectations for, is this a job that I want to take? And I just know I just have to put my head down and get yeah. through it because I'm doing it for the money. You yeah, know? like this job's going to suck, but the money's so good. But I, 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 I got to suck it up. Yeah. Or yeah. like, man, this job is like middle of nowhere, North Dakota, but man, this money, you know. Yeah. So it kind of just depends, right? Like everyone has different goals and what they want out of, out of the jobs that they take. And so, um, yeah, we, we have a database um, where we, we say our tagline is empowered travelers, empowered travelers. And, you know, I think you can, you know, you can Google, you can go on Facebook groups and things like that, but we have a centralized place for this database. All right. So speaking of empowered travelers, next mm -hmm. blog post is uh, called navigating the open road, overcoming the number one struggles or no more struggle that travelers face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think lonely, I mean, loneliness is the main reason why we even created MedVenture app and, um, I myself had experienced loneliness on my second assignment in San Francisco. I had just come from Napa Valley at a community hospital, very small. And I was really excited to go to a really big city, connect with people who wanted to explore the country and, and do unique experiences. And it was really hard for me to find those people. And so at first I was going to create a website and then I created the app. And I don't think loneliness is something that, you know, a lot of people in general talk about, but especially in our industry. Um, it's been normalized that, hey, yeah, we move around every few months um, throughout the year. You can do it as frequently as four times a year since our assignments are 13 weeks at a time. And we've normalized that experience, but we don't talk about how difficult it can be to start at a new hospital, have new coworkers, figure out a new routine. Where are you going to go to the gym? Where are you going to pick out groceries? Um, what activities are you going to be doing? Like all that's pretty, pretty um, isolating a lot of times. And, and our lifestyles are so unique that I think talking to someone who's been through that before um, really, you know, helps you not feel so alone in this really isolating experience. And yeah, I always um, thought it interesting, like you'd be in a crowd like 10,000 people and feel all alone, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that can be like New York City, you know, you walking around in New York City, you could be surrounded by people. But yeah, if you don't connect, connect like deeply with someone, you could still feel very isolated. And I will argue like, it could either be you're disconnected from yourself and or disconnected from other people. Um, so I do feel like it, there is a lot of power to um, really connecting with people who understand your experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you get these travel jobs, you get, you get to pick your shift um, or, or, or are they giving you the worst shift possible because you're not one of their teams, so to speak? Yeah. I think it really depends on the facility. I've been to hospitals where they treat what we call travelers. They treat travelers very well. Um, like one of their own, or I've been to hospitals where they are, they're like, oh, if you're coming in and getting we're paid, paying, we're paying all this money, you know, yeah, you might as well do the, the crappiest job. But um, I think if we think about, you know, really trying to retain people in our industry and in healthcare, in the healthcare system, like we have to treat people like humans, right? And if you're constantly going to crap on someone, <laughs> they're probably never going to come back. And so I think it, it kind of just depends on what their goals are. Are they trying to just churn and burn people or are they really trying to like provide people with a good experience so that they can give good care to people, which obviously should be all of our goals is like, if we're working in healthcare, we want to help people, right? And we want to give them better outcomes, <laughs> you would think, but yeah, you, you know, know, not everyone has the same goals. <laughs> yeah, you, you nurse like shit, you know, 
then they treat the patient like shit, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think uh, that's probably one of the biggest things that I see in healthcare is one of the problems is that we're just trying to turn and burn these people. And this is a big reason why people are leaving our industry and why we're having this great resignation. Um, and I, I really just feel like, you know, all of us go into healthcare with good intentions, but if you don't support us and um, if you don't really respect us, people are going to leave, you know, yeah. healthcare professionals are highly intelligent people <laughs> and they're not going to stick around to be crapped on. <laughs> so I think for the longest time, you always have this nursing shortage, right? Is there actually a nursing shortage? Yeah. So that's like the age old question of like, is there enough nurses and, and are there enough people in the workforce? I do think we're, you know, creating enough nurses these days, creating, you know, like enough educated nurses these days. But the problem is that the, the system is not helping to invest in retaining and valuing these people, right? So whether that's from safe staffing or giving them adequate pay um, or giving them time off or whatever it may be, um, there's just not enough, you know, nurses who want to stick around in crappy environments, in unsafe environments. Because again, most people go into this wanting to help people, but if you're not setting them up for success, what is going to keep them around? You know, they'll just figure out another way to contribute to society and like help people and serve um, rather than it shouldn't be one or the other. Right. And, and it oftentimes like feels like they have to choose between um, helping patients or helping themselves. Why can't we create an environment where everyone's being helped? Right. <laughs> so is a nurse a nurse? Like if a nurse has like education in Texas, they can get a job in, you know, Delaware or Korea. Like if you're a nurse, mm -hmm. you're a nurse or is like different standards on different places. Yeah. So the test that we take um, to be qualified for in, in nursing for the U.S. is standardized. So it's a national board exam. Um, but every time we want to work in a new state, we have to apply for it. And there's, you know, something called a compact state. So some people who are their primary license, if they're in a compact state, they could qualify to, to work in any other state without applying to them. But for me, for example, my primary state used to be New York. Now it's in Washington. Both of these states are not compact states. So that means every state that I want to work in, I have to apply for a new one. Luckily, I don't have to take a new exam because that would really suck. <laughs> I just have to, you know, pay a fee, maybe do some how fingerprinting. Long, how long is that process? Yeah, it really depends. So California notoriously used to of have course. a really, of really course. slow of course, yeah, California. <laughs> processing. Um, but, you know, I've gotten licenses within, you know, seven days in some states. That's not bad. Yeah. That's not bad at all. Mm -hmm. And then um, with, with nurses, like what's our education process, right? It's like a four-year degree, yeah. here in medical school, to talk, talk to the medical process. Sure. Uh, I mean, the education process, I mean. Yeah, so there's different um, different levels and, and I would just say like different types of nurses. So there's a an LPN and then there's an RN. And then, you know, if you want to go for higher education, you can, but there's basically like two different types of nurses and you can either go to a community school or a community college and you can do two years to just, you can get, you can become a nurse in two years. Or if you want to go for the RN, you do four years. And so it kind of just depends on like accessibility to education and what your goals are. But some people will do the two-year program. And then while they're working, they'll get the bridge program where, you know, they're in school part-time and get the RN. Um, but each, each facility also has their different requirements. Some hospitals want to, you know, increase their standard of care. So they'll only have bachelor's prepared nurses, whereas some facilities are like, oh, as long as you're enrolled in a program to become a bachelor's nurse, like we'll accept you. It really just depends. 
And LVN, that's like a basic nurse, like the entry level nurse? LVN, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, LVN or LPN, sometimes they're interchangeable, and then there's the RN. Um, but, yeah. And what's a nurse practitioner? Yeah, so a nurse practitioner, um, that is a nurse who has gone back for their master's, um, and they can prescribe. And so they're, they're usually working in a, in a physician-dominant. Um, they have to work under a physician. Um, but usually they can, depending on the state, sometimes they can open their own practices. Sometimes they can um, work with other nurse practitioners, depending on whatever their specialty is and whatever it may be. But sometimes they can work in the hospital, sometimes outpatient, um, but they can prescribe. And, and you treat. have to go back every once in a while, get recertified on something, or once you're a nurse, you're a nurse? So every few years, depending on the state, you have to reapply and you have to show that you're keeping up with your education and all of those things. Like each state has basically like these CU credits um, that you have to keep up with, um, but you just reapply for your license. Well, let's say someone's a nurse, right? And, but then they stop being a nurse like three years, right? They have to start everything all over again or? Um, it depends on if they're going to keep their act active uh, license. If they do keep their active license, they could just not work. And, you know, I mean, I, I will argue it's probably pretty hard to, to get a job um, at the same level as you were. Um, but it also depends on, you know, what is the staffing needs? Maybe they're really desperate and they're like, oh, well, you have experience. But I would generally say try not to lapse your experience more than a year. People usually want to see that you have relevant experience in that, you know, field within a year. But, you know, it kind of just depends. In the pandemic, we were pulling people out of retirement. So who really knows? You know? Yeah. <laughs> the next talk about nurse burnout. Oh, gosh. Okay. Great topic. <laughs> I'm very passionate about that. Um, you know, I think. Burnout is something that not only nurses are experiencing right now, I think most people are experiencing it. But I think specifically with nurses, it's, it's tied into the work environment. So I think a lot of times um, nurse burnout and also compassion fatigue are used interchangeably, but they're actually pretty different. Um, compassion fatigue is when you start to depersonalize things and you you lose your compassion for the care that you're giving, whereas burnout is really... Um, impacted by the trauma and the environment that you're in constantly. And um, yeah, it just, burnout is much harder to come back from. It takes a lot more time. And sometimes that means you have to take a break from nursing or, or whatever unit you are, intense emotions or trauma, whatever can be, whatever that like constant stimuli is. And then compassion fatigue um, is much easier to treat if you catch it early on. And so um, I think nowadays people are recognizing if their mental health is being, you know, impacted. Um, that generally means that you need a break. And I think um, nurse burnout, I mean, it's a very complex topic, you know, it depends on how are you treating yourself? Um, you know, how are you prioritizing your well-being outside of the hospital? And also, are you being supported in the hospital that you're at? You know, can you take PTO time? Can you take a vacation? Um, or are you, you know, constantly working overtime and feeling obligated or is your management supporting you in, in days off or are they constantly texting you or, you know, not respecting your boundaries or whatever it may be. There's so many different factors that come into play. Um, but I, I think ultimately nurses just want to feel supported and respected and, and a lot of times we're not. So nurses, they got to be pretty emotionally, mostly balanced, right? Like they, <laughs> like they really can't, couldn't like really... I'm guessing it'd be not a bad thing, but not a good thing for like, you really can't get too personally, mostly tied with your patients, right? I think it just depends on the person. I think, you know, 
depending on how empathetic I will, I, I do think a lot of people are really empathetic and um, will feel their patient's emotions with them. I, I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think when you don't know how to process that in a healthy way and cope with it, um, that's when I think you are, you know, too overly attached um, to your patient. But I also think being super unattached to your patient and being super jaded is also, you know, not helpful as, as well. But I think it really just depends on the person, and like what their goals are. Like I personally like to connect with my patient. I like to go above and beyond. But I have learned throughout being super burnt out, you know, with the detriments of like over attaching to a patient, you know, and not learning how to how to process it. So how do you recommend a nurse deal with this? Right? Suppose a nurse is like a, a, a her sex on hospital like is a high death hurt, right? Mm-hmm. Deals with death all the time. And she's sympathetic. She's trying to be sympathetic, right? But like one day, like, you know, she's like, I won't say jaded, like, you know, like she's not worth it or whatever. And someone dies. And those family members are like, you didn't care for my, my parent. You know, you didn't care. Like, I could tell you, you did this for the job, all this kind of stuff. How do you recommend a nurse like deal with that? Like, I'm sure those situations come up, right? Yeah, those situations definitely come up. I think, I mean, I don't think a lot of the times we get the backlash of like patients, family members, and friends telling us that we didn't do enough. I think that's actually more self-inflicted guilt um, of when we lose patients. We, I mean, all the time we will review that situation or that day time and time again, especially if we were emotionally that patient, you know, we'll go home and we'll think like, did we miss something? Do we make a mistake? Should I have like, you know, spoke up something about something sooner? And, you know, having been through so many dozens of experiences myself, um, sometimes like you know, we can't save everyone. That's just a simple fact of the matter. Um, and I think a lot of times we hold that responsibility when there's so many different factors, right? Like it's not only us, it's the entire care team, it's the doctors, it's like all the specialties that come into play. How did we all contribute to, you know, this outcome? And sometimes the disease process, just people decompensate from the disease process. And there's nothing that we could have done to prevent that from happening, but we do hold on to that guilt. And I think for someone who's like holding on to that guilt, um, I think knowing that going into a day is like you showed up as your best. And that was something I needed to tell myself when I started to feel really guilty a lot of times with losing patients or poor outcomes is like you showed up that day and you did your best with all the knowledge and information that you had. Right. If you could go go back in that day, I'm sure there's nothing we would have changed because we did our best. No one shows up to work and they're like, oh, I'll just like half ass this or I'll just like try to do like less than I think is the best in the best interest interest of this patient, right? Like I, I want to believe that most of us show up and we do our best with what we have that day. Um, but I, I think that guilt is very, very prevalent amongst us. And how do you keep from like, suppose you're married or have loved ones or partners, whatever the case may be. How do you keep from like taking all that stuff for the hospital home? Like how do you come apart? Or always actually good to go home and like kind of vent and talk about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that really depends on the person. I will say, I, th- I think, you know, something that they should teach us in school and, and that the hospital should also support us in is how to process um, difficult emotions and difficult experiences. Because again, I think um, it's been so normalized. Yeah, you just like you experience disease and death like on the daily, but um, people don't realize how big of an impact that can have on our mental health and the fact that we're seeing this time and time again. Um, and I, I, having learned so much about burnout, I've learned that the stress cycle is actually cyclical. And if you don't, and, and just because the stressor is gone, um, if you don't process that in a healthy way, it just continues to compound until it hits a point where, you know, it could be the silliest thing that 
makes you explode or whatever it may be, right? We've all been in that place, but especially when it comes to what we're dealing with in healthcare. Um, and there's six ways. So there's a book that I read. It's called Burnout. Um, it's by these two sisters, Emily Nagoski, and I'm forgetting her sister's name, but it was very helpful for me to understand the ways to process and finish this um, stress cycle. And I think a lot of us just go home, we'll have you know, a bottle of wine or something, watch or, Netflix. Or, or, or two. <laughs> yeah, we'll watch Netflix. And, and then we think like, oh, you know, I, I have to go back again. But that was like very passive. That was not processing at all. Um, and some of the ways that I learned in the book is, you know, laughter is very helpful. Um, venting, I think it depends on, you know, the dynamics that you ha- have with your support systems. Sometimes your spouse, if they're in healthcare, it's helpful. If they're not in healthcare, that's helpful. Sometimes talking with your friends are helpful, but I will also say that with a caveat of if you're trauma bonding, because trauma bonding is something that's very detrimental with like nurses and people in healthcare who are seeing really traumatic things. The only thing that they can connect on is all their trauma. And that is not helpful for anyone. I think like having a container of like, we're just going to complain about this for 10 minutes and then we have to move on from this and not continuously like attach to it. Um, Cause then, you know, we get too comfortable with, you know, attaching to all these negativities. Right. And I, as someone who's very solution, solution based, if you're not finding a solution for it and you're constantly in this negative cycle, it's not helping anyone. Right. It's not helping us. It's not helping the patient. We're going to work um, in a negative state. And so um, I think finding a way of, you know, if that means, you know, talking to a therapist or someone, cause I think also our support systems really do carry a lot and we project a lot of things onto them as well. And I think having a healthy dialogue of like, Hey, do you have capacity to hold space for me right now? And I know that can sound very formal, but you know, sometimes we take advantage of our family members and our our friends as well. And sometimes they are dealing with their own stuff too. Right. And that's why our professional help can be really helpful or having support groups can be helpful or for me, physical movement is like how I process a lot of my uh, stressors and a lot of my traumas um, is like, I always say like energy is, or excuse me, emotion is energy in motion. So you, it, it never gets like created or destroyed. You have to just like transfer it to something else. And for me, I think physical movement, whether it's a walk, whether it's like weightlifting, yoga, whatever, whatever you like, that's why I love going outside. <laughs> um, that is how I healthily transfer that energy. Okay. So can a and some might be too mostly tied. For example, like suppose you're working in a hospital, right? And when your fellow nurses or patient dies and you find out that this nurse is going to go to that person's funeral, mm-hmm. is that like taking it too far? Um, I honestly just feel like that that's all on whatever the, the facility's policies are. Okay. Um, I've never been to a funeral before, but I've definitely um, have been connected to family members who will give us updates on, you know, what the services are and whatnot. Um, I think it honestly just depends on it depends on the patient. And um, I, I would, I, I've worked in mostly ICUs and we've definitely been invited to funerals, especially if like we've had the patient. Okay. So, so, so it actually happens. Okay. Yeah. It definitely okay. has happened before. And I think it just depends on the policy of the hospital, the unit culture as well. Um, and also because a lot of times it could be a HIPAA violation as well. You know, we obviously yeah. want to yeah. be private and, and be respectful to that. So sometimes I mean, I personally haven't, but I do know, you know, maybe the unit will send, you know, flowers or, you know, their condolences or whatever it may be to the family. So can someone be too young to be a nurse? I mean, like they don't have enough knowledge experience and then 
and someone be too old, meaning like their skills are kind of degrading, right? Mm -hmm. Through age. Um, I don't think, well, from what I've seen, young wise, you obviously just have to make sure you have the education, you know, go through whatever the education is. Um, but, you know, when I became a nurse, I think I was like 22. And I think that's pretty average, 21, 22. Um, I think what I will caution with young younger nurses and having been there is that I think a lot of times we attach our over over attach our identity to our careers and we'll think, you know, so great. I, I worked all this time to become a nurse and then you forget how to be a human before you are a nurse. So I think that is when we hit a lot of the burnout, compassion fatigue, because we forget to nurse the other parts of our lives and our relationships outside of nursing. And then as far as like the other side of the spectrum, I remember when I was going through nursing school, the administration was saying that the oldest person they admitted into the program was 72 years old. And they said, we don't discriminate. If you want to be a nurse, we welcome you into our profession. I mean, I can't speak obviously for every single school, but at least the school that I came from, they were like, if you have the passion, you want to help people, you want to be a nurse, like we'll accept you. Um, but I will say nursing is very physically taxing depending on, you know, if you're working in a hospital. And I think that's generically where you think of nurses can work, but there's obviously tons of different pathways where if you never wanted to talk to someone, you could also be a nurse and work in informatics. If you can work in so many different, you can work as a startup person, you know, as an entrepreneur, there's so many different pathways. Yeah. So as a nurse, how do you deal with like needy patients, right? I mean, of course they're sick, whatever, but suppose it pays like every five minutes, clicking the button, right? Oh, give me some water, totally. give me some ice, give me this, right? And like, how do you, totally. how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a really quick question. And for any nurses who are watching, we have all been there many, many times again. I think first and foremost, this is actually really funny because it actually plays into my burnout story of like the first time that I recognized that I was burnt out before the pandemic. This was probably, I was burnt out for the second time. Um, I was on a travel assignment here in Seattle and I had a patient who had C. diff, which is a, a, a virus that will make patients shit a lot <laughs> and have like constant diarrhea and these patients are really needy a lot of times because they need to go to the bathroom they're really exhausted whatever it may be and um i recognized that i was burnt out because this patient the moment that clicked in my brain was that they were opening their yogurt and they were complaining about the flavor of yogurt and i was they were just complaining about it i was like listen i've been in here every five minutes i have other patients i need to like care for um, and when I left the room, I was like, wow, I need to check myself because if I'm complaining with the fact that they're sick in the hospital and I get to go home, I get to have the comfort of my, you know, of my house of being healthy and all these, you know, uh, of having a very, you know, privileged state in many senses, like this is not how I want to show up for my patient and vice versa. So that was like, first and foremost, like a wake up call for me, to like check myself. I always say, I got to check myself before I myself <laughs> <laughs> of like. Um, hey, this is a lot, but also on the other side, I have no problem setting boundaries and expectations as well, you know, especially in the first, um, first, you know, hour or first interaction that I have with a, a patient, I can generally see what the dynamic is going to be like. And I do think, you know, depending on the personality, depending on what they've been through, how long they've been in the hospital, you know. Some people want to be coddled. Some people need tough love. I tend to be more of a tough love person of like, what is your goal? Usually the goal is to get out of the hospital, right? So if your goal is to get well and get out of the hospital and you all you want to do is stay in the bed, I'm going to respectfully, I'm going to push you to get out of the hospital. Let's move. Let's eat. You got to get nutrition. 
you got to do, you know, we got to do the things that you need to do to get home. And usually my tactic is try to connect them with whatever they care about. So if, is it grandkids they want to go see? Is it a baseball game they want to go to? Like whatever it may be, let me help to find, let, let me help them connect to whatever their motivator is. But to do that, you got to connect with them personally too, right? Yeah, exactly. And so for me, I usually try to like connect with them on whatever personal level so that I can help them align with their goals to help me with my goals. Right. Um, and so, I don't know. It, it, it really depends on the patient and whatever the expectations are, but I have no problems like giving some tough love and setting boundaries. Cause there's definitely been tons of patients that are like, Oh, I broke my leg. I need help eating. I was like, Oh, did your arms break <laughs> in the meantime as well? You know? And I think a lot of times like, you know, you'll see you're the like, difference. You're, like you're a nurse, not a first servant. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is the biggest thing is like, there's this, you know, so many misconceptions of what a nurse is with like how we've been painted in, in media, in the news and, you know, what people talk about with nurses. And it's just, you know, sure, we'll help you, but you can't, you know, take advantage of us either. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start to talk about family members, right? So obviously if a family member, the first, if someone gets hostile, they'll probably ask a thousand one questions, right? Mm-hmm. But after day two, day three, they're still needy. How do you deal with that? Oh gosh. So many experiences with that. Um, I definitely think, you know, setting expectations again, I've had to get management involved before I've had to get administration involved because there are inappropriate requests a lot of the times or inappropriate, like they're trying to log in or like do something with their, um, family member or their friend that's like inappropriate. You know, we've had really difficult family member obligation or, um, dynamics where maybe there's a girlfriend that like another family member doesn't know about or whatever it may be. And, there's just a lot that we deal with with I, I think the, the general public does not understand with and especially with withholding information and like, you know, who is the direct person who is involved in the care, who's in the advanced directives, you know, legally, who can we give information to? to sure. has, has it ever happened like, you know, like someone comes and says, Hey, I'm John Smith's, you know, wife. And you're yeah. like, um I just someone, yeah. <laughs> Someone named Mary Jane just said his wife. Totally. Yeah. Oh, tons of experiences like that. It's so awkward. <laughs> and I think, you know, it, it all goes back to, you know, if the patient is, you know, totally lucid, we're, we're going to have to confront them and be like, hey, listen, this person's claiming this thing. This person's claiming this thing. You need to just tell us what is the relationship and who can we, you know, tell information to and whatnot. And then everything else, we need to like handle it as accordingly. And we've definitely upset people. Many times and time and again, but we, you know, we have to have things in writing. We have to do things like legally as well. And so it, it puts us in a very awkward situation. That's why a lot of times we do need support because there will be family members and friends who get angry at us, aggressive with us. We never know, you know, I mean, this can go into like workplace violence as well. You know, we never know if people are, have weapons on them as well. And we have to protect ourselves as well as our, our patients and the rest of the people who are in the hospital. So it definitely puts us in a lot of, you know, awkward and also potentially dangerous situations. Talk about the points of people having, I think it's called medical power of attorneys. Yep. And talk about that. Yeah, the DPOA. So a lot of times when people go into the hospital and also anyone who's watching this, you should have a, a, an appointed person who can make decisions for you if you are not in the right state of mind um, to make that decision. I don't think you should wait until something happens. I'm always more pro proactive. Um, during the pandemic, I had a conversation with my entire family who are all very healthy. We need to decide who is going to be our appointed direct contact 
if anything happens, because I think when things happen, you're heightened with emotion. And when you're in emotion, you are not thinking clearly, right? And especially if you have a big family, if you have a lot of siblings, you know, you want to just remove all of that chaos from a chaotic situation when you're in it. And so I think, um, and we see this in the hospital all the time with like, oh, the ex-wife is going to be the, <laughs> the ex-wife is going to be the decision maker, but then the wife is upset because, yeah. So have things in writing and then that'll completely, you know, take the chaos out of it because then we know exactly what the, what the patient wants, but you know, nine times out of 10, that's not what we, what we see in the hospital. And that's actually, we do a, an intake form whenever patients come into the hospital. And that's one of the first things that we ask is like, if you can't make decisions, who's the person that we're going to make decisions to Do you want your doctor to be aware of things? And also who do you want information, you know, to be told to. Is there like an alcoholic addiction or drug addiction problem in, in nursing? Uh, like from the us? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I, I personally think so. Uh, I'll probably get a lot of backlash for anyone who's watching this who might feel some type of way. Um, I think in general, like outside of our profession, I think alcohol is overused and abused and then normalized. Um, but also I think, you know, with so many memes and so many, you know, thing like content on social media, you know, you'll always see the like, oh yeah, you get home, you have the bottle of wine and then you're drinking it and and whatnot. And I think a lot of times there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol, right? In moderation. But I think I've just seen enough people in the hospital who self-medicate and build that habit over time. And then you look down the line with however many years and you're like, well, where did this come from? Where did my like liver failure come from? <laughs> Whatever. And I'm like, well, like, where do we build this habit? And it's usually in our twenties and thirties when we're like, not thinking down the line of when we're like 50, 60, 70s and how it's going to impact us later down the line. But I think, I do think um, healthcare professionals have not been taught how to have, you know, healthy coping mechanisms. And I think alcohol is one of the the main alcohol and also, you know, hard partying and, and hard drugs has been used to self-medicate. Cause I think it's, and, and, you know, I'm coming from a place of like empathy though. Like we deal with such intense emotions and experiences and we're just taught to suppress them and like you know you lose a patient and then all of a sudden um you know the heavy smiley face off the next one totally your charge nurse is like oh you're getting an admission in in the same room you're like cool i didn't even get to process the fact that i just lost a human that i had a connection with or that i just poured so much of my time and resources into you you better not have you better have any status the new new patient yeah exactly we're just expected to like Totally just suppress that. And, you know, we obviously have to compartmentalize, you know, to do our jobs. But that's why when you're off the clock and you go home, that's why it's so important. We got to figure out a way to process this shit because it is it is heavy. And if you don't do it, then it's compounded over time. You become jaded. You don't like connect with people anymore. Like it can be pretty dangerous. How? I mean, how does a nurse lose their job? I mean, besides doing something like, you know, illegal and unethical. Oh, yeah, like, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like, I mean, obviously you're, you're still in medicine. You get fired, but like, you get fired like being not, you know, customer service friendly enough or like following directions or how, how are some ways to follow, a nurse can mm. lose their job? I don't think legally those can be like legitimate ways to okay. get fired, but I, I'm sure that has happened of like, and I think that's the shame of um, healthcare these days is like, especially nursing, we're judged on our customer service, which, you know, when when hospitals are formatted as hotels, everyone's losing. You know, the nurse is expected to answer a call light in a certain amount of time or like, you know, go to deliver this thing in a certain amount of time or like carry out this intervention. But 
the fact of the matter is when you're working in a hospital, there is a thousand and one distractions. There's a thousand and one ways that we're being pulled. And the nurse is really a project manager for the patient, right? Like we're being called by the lab, by the physical therapist, by the doctor, by this specialty, whatever it may be, by the patient itself. And there's just so many things to manage, so many different priorities that are changing all the time. And I don't think we have enough help, you know, even from the the short staffing um, standpoint of how to even stay sane in that. <laughs> like we really need adequate support in that front of whether that's a break nurse or having a nurse's aide or enough nurses that we're not out of ratio or, or safe ratios. Um, and so I think a lot of times um, nurses might not be giving, you know, the creme de la creme type of hospital experience that people expect. But listen, if you don't set us up for success, like it's the, the, the patient is the one who's going to be suffering. Right. And I think a lot of times, like, I would argue like the majority of people who go to hospitals don't have a good experience. And that is a shame. Like, I mean, but you are sick, right? Totally. I was going to say, I mean, how good of an experience can yeah. you be getting yeah. if you're sick? Yeah. You're, not, you're not going on vacation, right? <laughs> right. You're going something's wrong. Right. Exactly. But I do think, you know, there is a lot of room for, for growth, obviously, and, and for a better like hospital experience, but it isn't going to be a hospital or, or a hotel experience. I think that is um, where, where, uh, I think we have a lot of room to grow is like um, there's even from the um, what's it called the insurance standpoint um, insurance reimbursements only happen when there's like certain scores they call them H cap scores so it has to hit a certain level um, and customer service is like and nursing experience is like highly yeah. regarded in that front and so it's a shame that you know we're being judged for how we deliver our care but you're not supporting us to be able to deliver that level of care. But I'm guessing if someone leaves a hospital, they say, hey, had a great experience. Hey, I can't really come back. You probably do your job too well. <laughs> yeah, probably, right? You don't want them to have that great of an experience. <laughs> so what's the typical doctor-nurse working relationship like? How does that work? I think that could be very varied. Um, I think we're in a transition phase right now where historically, there's been this hierarchy, right? And I, I like to say hierarchy because I think that was the model that in the old generations that's been taught. Like, you're, you're a doctor, I'm a nurse, don't, you know, whatever I say goes. But frankly, that is just not, <laughs> I mean, that doesn't fly with a lot of nurses these days because, you know, I think nurses have a very unique perspective as far as like we're with patients 12 hours a day, right? 12 plus hours a day. We see every subtle change we get to know them in and out on the personal level, but also from like the medical level as well. We're carrying out the interventions and we also suggest things as well based off of whatever our assessments are, right? We're constantly assessing and seeing the patients um, and we get to have this very unique relationship where, you know, doctors only come in maybe like five to 10 minutes, right? They chat real quick. This is what the plan is, da, da, da. But what if something changes that we found out and now we can recommend a new recommendation based off of like whatever physiological changes there are or maybe psychological changes of like whatever the, the patient wants or maybe their goals are changing. And so I think a lot of times in at least my experiences, I've been to, I want to say like 12 hospitals at this point all over the country. Um, it really depends on the unit, depends on the hospital um, with how, you know, culture you know, obviously plays a really big part, but I don't see the the standard or the historical hierarchy as reinforced as it used to. But I also have, you know, met a lot of disrespectful people who don't want to hear from me, even though 
I think my opinion is should be as highly regarded as any other doctor because I'm spending all this time uh, with the patient. So I have a lot of um, unique insights that could be helpful. And our, our goal is all the same, right? We're trying to help people. We're trying to get people out of the hospital. We're trying to give them a better outcome. And um, I do think nurses have a very unique perspective that should be respected. So two-part question. Part one is like, in the best of all worlds, how many patients should a nurse be handling? Mm-hmm. And what's the real answer? How many patients should nurses really handle? Yeah. Um, so I think it definitely depends on the specialty. So depending on if you're in the emergency room, if you're in the intensive care unit, if you're on a medical surgical regular unit, um, that really differs. I mean, here on the West Coast, we're pretty good with, you know, trying to standardize what our staffing ratios are. Um, I'll just speak on ICU since that's my bread and butter. Um, so what, what would be safe is usually anywhere from one to two for um, a nurse, depending on how sick they are, what the acuity is. And then unsafe would be anywhere from, I mean, my friends in New York during COVID were taking care of like anywhere from like three to five, six, like super unsafe. Um, and then from the medical surgical, which is the general floor, um, I've had friends in New York take care of like 11 patients where you should really only be taking care of six. So maybe five or six. So it really is dependent on the hospital, the region of the um, state, and then also legislation. I mean, I'm really hoping one day we can get to a point where we can have like universal patient staffing ratios um, that's reinforced by legislation all across the board so that there's not all this, you know, disparity amongst different states and whatnot, because you're, you are going to start seeing like people who leave for travel healthcare. There's only a select, very small amount of hospitals that people want to work in um, that treat their, you know, treat their staffing well, treat their patients well, set them up for success. Um, there's not a lot of places out there that, that do that. So let's suppose your shift's over the your shift's over the hospital, right? Is there a process where you like you have to sanitize yourself or you go home, like spray yourself down with Lysol, or like you just <laughs> or do you just like get off work and, and go home? Yeah. Um, people watching this will probably have a lot of different opinions on this, but as someone who I, I am lean more on the germaphobe side. So I am someone who's like when I get home, I'm stripping all my clothes and I am going to be, you know, jumping straight into the shower. I have friends who come home from their shift and they will lay down in their scrubs in their bed. And I'm like, yeah, I, don't I know. would never yeah, I don't know do about that. that. I don't know about that. One. I need to shower everything. Yeah, I don't and know about uh, that one. so I think it just depends. Right. I mean, also, like, depending on where you are working in the hospital and like what your exposure are, if you're just triaging and you're not like in the thick of, you know, bodily fluids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Maybe maybe you don't have to, you know, completely sanitize your body. But I just feel, I feel disgusting no matter where I am in the hospital. The second I step foot in the hospital, I'm going to be showering when I get home. Now the scrubs, do you get, you have to like use the same ones over and over again? Or are you going to go home, throw them away and get a new pair? Yeah. So depending on where you're working. So anything that has to do with the operating room or any like recovery, they get hospital given scrubs um, where, you know, maybe there's a machine and, and they get scrubs or they get scrubs provided for everywhere else. Generally, we have to provide our own scrubs. And so... We walk in and I, I have, you know, I just throw everything in the hamper and okay. I used to separate scrubs with not, but nowadays I'm just like, everything's together. <laughs> All right. So I, I have a friend, she's she becoming a nurse practitioner this summer, uh, Rosa Compton. Mm-hmm. And so she has some questions for me to ask you, right? Okay. The first one is, uh, why did you choose, choose nursing? Good question. So I originally wanted to become a nurse because... You know, this sounds so generic, but I wanted to help people. And originally when I went into college, I wanted to be a physician assistant. 
consistent. So I wanted to be a provider. I wanted to prescribe things. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do yet. But then to become a physician assistant, you needed clinical hours under your belt to even apply for school. So I became a um, certified nursing assistant and I got to spend some time with some nurses and see what they did. And I realized that I really love building relationships. I really love talking to people and having that rapport. And I didn't just want to be like in and out of a room for five, five to 10 minutes. So I switched into nursing um, because I felt like that fit my personality a lot more. And I originally wanted to even go into healthcare because I had experienced like some personal experiences with being on the caregiver side as well. And so um, I swam competitively right up into college. I swam two years at a D1 school in New York and my high school coach had died from a sudden heart attack and he was like a father-like figure in my life. Um, And then my college coach had passed away from pancreatic cancer. And those two experiences really woke me up. I started asking myself existential questions when I was in high school. Of like, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? And whatever else. Um, and I think you have those questions when you have like, you know, tough experiences like that. And uh, it really showed me, you know, a little glimmer of what it was like to um, be in healthcare and like, why, why do people get sick? And, you know, I, I do actually nowadays, having seen what I've seen with like the sickest of the sickest, I actually really love preventative health and, and all of that nowadays. Like, how can we stop people from getting so sick and, you know, intervene before, before it almost sometimes gets too late. And so those are the main reasons why I became a nurse. And I also learned that nursing has so many different pathways, right? Like I'm an entrepreneur now. I would never was taught that in nursing school, but I can choose a different path without even going back to school, which I think is a really magical thing. I could work for a tech company. I could work for biomed companies. I could work for mental health, whatever it may be. There's so many different pathways, which is so magical. That's actually the next question. Next question yeah. is, <laughs> ask her how her nursing background contributed to her entrepreneurship. Perfect. I love this question. So I think a lot of times people are like, oh, you work in healthcare. Like, how, how are you in business or in startup now? Um, I will argue, especially from my background in ICU nursing, um, I used to work with open heart surgery ICU patients. And so people get open heart surgery. They come to me to recover. And like I said before, I was like a project manager, managing all the different pieces that came into play. Um, and I think as an entrepreneur, especially as a startup entrepreneur, like you are, you're doing marketing all the time. You're doing product, project management. You're doing, you know, you're like supervising your tech team. You're figuring out content creation and, and all this stuff. And, um, yeah, it's been the most humbling experience, but I do think nurses know how to stress manage. They know how to talk to people. Um, I think building from firsthand experience is it is just out of this world experience because then you're not just speculating, oh, maybe this solution will work. You actually know that this solution will work because you've had that firsthand experience. So many, many transferable skills. Her next, her next one is, what advice do you have for other nurses wanting to create an app or go into tech? Yeah. Um, my first advice is if you have an idea, um, granted, one, I think you should validate your idea. So talk to people who are sharing those pain points and make sure that's even some like a solution that they want and, and see if it's even a, like how prevalent is this problem. And then two, um, I would definitely suss out the competition, see what solutions already exist. And that's okay if a solution already exists or many solutions exist, but how can you innovate and create a better solution? So on your bio, it says, uh, Emily Ching is a 
I have no idea what's word. Multi <laughs> something. Potentially. Something. What, yeah. what is that? Like, what, I have no idea. Like, yeah, what that's that is. Totally cool. Um, so I, I, I'm probably saying that word wrong, but a multi potentialite is someone who's interested in many different things and and um, interested, passionate, and also has skills in many different avenues. So for me, I never wanted to you know fit into this one box of you're only an ICU nurse. You can only you know work in that. I think. You know, I can contribute to a lot of different sectors, whether that's mental health, in tech, in entrepreneurship. I obviously love the outdoors, so I really love environmentalism as well. I love diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so I think uh, in general, we should never put someone in a box because um, that not only hinders themselves like personally, but also professionally as well. So I found this um, doing like a deep dive on you. Something called Brexit's Best. Your name was one of the top nurse entrepreneurs of Washington 2023. Yep. You talk about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, one, I'm always really humbled. I think in general, sometimes. I mean, like, I'm guessing that's a big deal, right? <laughs> I mean, I've never I mean, heard of Brexit before, but sure, I'm sure. that's a big thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I, I think in general, um, you know, with the, the amount of um, traction that we've had with our app, I think a lot of people are starting to see that, you know, what we're creating is something very unique and much needed to solve a problem that's never been solved. And I think that's been really humbling is to identify a problem that's never been solved and, and, um, and directly solved. I think people, you know, always skirt around and never really saw that loneliness within the traveling healthcare community was even a problem that was um, that prevalent or that important to solve. Um, but I will argue that we are changing the well-being of clinicians and also helping to rebuild a healthier culture within the traveling healthcare industry. So what are some things like suppose a nurse out there becomes a travel nurse? What are some things that they get wrong about being a travel nurse? Like, of course, probably don't expect like to be lonely. Like a myth? Yeah, like they probably don't expect to be lonely or whatever. What are some, some myths of stuff that, you know, they're not anticipating? Yeah, I definitely think people don't anticipate how lonely you will be. But also, I will say the other side of that is that I don't think loneliness is a bad thing necessarily. I think loneliness um, could be a really empowering thing, at least for me personally. I think if I would never have taken back the time that I felt lonely because I learned how to be really love my own company. I learned how to explore by myself. I learned, you know, this is where you build confidence in yourself, right? This is where you build self-confidence. And um, self-respect this is where you build self-love. I learned how to love parts of myself that I don't think I would have ever loved about myself if I didn't spend that time by myself. And I think I actually learned this recently from one of my favorite books um, by Jay Shetty. It was in the romantic sense, but loneliness is something that I think society, you know, we were like, oh my God, you don't want to be alone. It's like one of the worst things you could ever do or, or like experience. But um, solitude and being alone and loneliness is like the same thing. So being alone branches off into loneliness and solitude. Solitude is when you're being empowered in, in being alone. Whereas loneliness is like this dread and this, um, you know, this, this power that's like, oh, I can only really be empowered or be fulfilled or have meaning when I'm doing things with other people. But I think if you can love your own company, how much more is, joy is that amplified when you bring people who like share common interests with you or, you know, resonate with you or you, you, um, get along with. And so you're also a board certified holistic nurse coach. No, I'm not. not? Okay. <laughs> Got it wrong. No worries. All right. Um, so next, so 
Are you building this app yourself or someone's building it for you? Yeah, I wish I can say that I am talented enough to code, but I'm not. Okay. <laughs> um, we have out, um, outsourced um, offshore for all our development. Um, we've had two teams so far and they've been in India. And um, yeah, they've been great, but I'm hoping in the next year or so we can start bringing more in-house talent. Can you talk about your process about finding these outsourced teams? Oh God, it's, it's like been the a challenges process. and the suck of it, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it has been very challenging. I think that's the biggest thing in tech, especially when, like, obviously, tech is the one of the most like monetized industries around the world and things like that. And it can be very, very difficult to find good quality talent at you know affordable prices. And um, we have learned from many experiences that. Um, some of these websites, some of the reviews and things like that are either paid or they're not real or whatever it may be. And, you know, we used to we used to use Upwork a lot of the times and we have come across some not so great talent. And I will never take recommendations now if it's not from someone I personally know um, because I've had poor experience before. So how do you all manage these teams in India? Yeah, um, well, definitely time zones really suck. So I'm either up really early or late at night communicating with them. Luckily, I work with a project manager and the CTO of this company. And so um, just communicating with them about, you know, this is something that we're trying to build in. This is the glitch we're trying to fix. Or this is, you know, new policies that are being rolled out. And like, how are we going to manage those things? So, yeah, we, we use Skype in particular. And, and why did you pick this particular team? That just impressed you or they had like the, they had the quality of work or something? Like what made you, go, made you go with them? Yeah, I would say quality of work and affordability is probably the two top things. And then it was recommended by, by someone I didn't accelerate it with. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so what does your app actually do? Yeah, great question. So MedVenture app, the main, the, the main functions of the app are you can meet people based on location and interest. So let's say I set my location here in Seattle. I can see everyone in a hundred mile radius. I could connect with them either romantically or platonically. We've actually had a lot of couples come out of our app. You can host or attend meetups and events um, as a user yourself, or we work with local businesses or in, in agencies to host these events all around the country. So for example, last month we actually hosted Friendsgivings all over the country. So we were able to work with our sponsor who sponsors it every single year. And we're able to, uh, to work with our ambassadors and some of our other users on the app to be able to host um, Friendsgivings all over the country to give people home away from home. Another part of the app is our homepage. This is where our users can give and get recommendations on things to do, where to eat and drink, and housing options. And then we have reviews where um, our users can give and or can read and rate facility reviews as well as agency reviews and stay anonymous. And then we have our resources page, which is where we partner up with different um, physical goods as well as um, uh, physical goods and services that serve our community. So tax, um, tax prep, health insurance, physical products. And talk about the process. I think it's called customer discovery. Like how did you mm -hmm. validate that people actually was going to pay money for this? Or yeah. So our users actually don't pay money for it. We, our monetization all comes from the B2B side. So all from the agencies, the staffing agencies that serve, um, that staff our, our community. And so um, when we were doing customer discovery, I mostly was doing customer discovery to make sure that um, people wanted to connect with people. And then I knew that after we grew um, a really reliable and diehard community, then we can, you know, start looking into all the other ways of monetization. Um, but yeah, monetization was actually not my first and foremost, like, uh, goal for this business. But 
I'm a strong believer that if you provide massive value, you'll be able to monetize anything. So when you first started, started, how do you convince these nurses to get on your app right? I mean, like there was just nothing like it around it besides Instagram or Facebook groups. And so people are like, oh, my gosh, there's an app where I can find someone like me. That's so awesome. And I think what's been really cool is that our growth, we have um, almost 20,500 users. It's all been mostly word of mouth, social media um, and our amazing ambassador team of almost 60 people who go around and, you know, they're starting at different hospitals all throughout the year and they're able to help us spread the word at orientation and when they meet other traveling healthcare professionals of just like getting them on the app. And um, I honestly feel like we've just filled, we're filling this need that no one has ever addressed of helping people tap into a community, no matter where they are around the country. And do you do like any advertising like in nursing schools? We actually don't do nursing schools. Um, I've, I've spoken at my nursing school twice, um, but that would be a great way to, you know, find people who want to go into travel healthcare. I think the thing with nursing is like, you need at least two years of experience before oh, you okay. go into it. Okay. So um, I would love to advertise at hospitals, but hospitals probably don't want to lose their nurses to travel <laughs> nursing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably not. And um, you have a co-founder, right? I do have a co-founder. Yep, Ryan and, Cogdill. And how long have you known him? I've known him since September of 2019. Okay. Um, in person. We were Instagram friends before we became business partners. Okay. And then we met at this conference um, in September of 2019. and. November was when we decided to be business partners. And this so. was your idea, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you convince him to join you? <laughs> he was one of the first people that I had a customer discovery call with. And okay. I knew he had tons of experience in the travel community. And so I was like, I feel like he would have really good insights, whether this is something that he would use or our community would use. And so, yeah. So talk about, you know, I think a lot of startups fail because the co-founders like get mad at each other and whatever the case may be. How have y'all kept such a good relationship so far? I definitely think communication is like in any relationship. And is he here in Seattle also? No, he's in San Diego. Okay. Yeah. I really think, you know, the most like unsexy thing in in the success of any type of relationship is communication, right? And I think like communication is this lifelong skill that we're constantly learning how to do better at if, if you want successful relationships. And I really feel like that's something that I'm really proud of us for really dedicating towards and working on, especially in like conflict. Um, I think in general, whether it's romantic, familial, friendship, like conflict resolution is probably one of the best skills you could ever invest in. And I think we've done that time and time again is like we won't always see eye to eye. We won't always like, you know, agree on things. But that's where the magic is. Right. Like I don't need someone. I don't want to work with someone who's just going to be like a yes, yes, man type of person. Like I want someone who has different perspectives on um, different things and. I think that's been one of the best things that we've done is just working on our um, conflict resolution, working on our communication of like, and even just learning, like, how does he enjoy being appreciated? How do I enjoy being appreciated? And just communicating those things as well, because like, you know, we can't assume that how we, you know, how we want things to be done is always like the way that other people like to be appreciated as well. So it's been really fun to kind of just learn and it's definitely bled into my other relationships as well of like the skills and um the different tactics that I'm learning how can I use that for to to nourish the other parts of my relationships in my life so like don't tell us the details but like how do y'all work through like the equity part like who gets part of equity how do y'all work through that sure yeah I mean honestly that was a very hard conversation to have and I think that's always a hard conversation amongst founders um but I think most of ours was mostly like who came up with the idea and then uh, we don't have too big of an equity split. Um, but I do think after learning like the detriments 
of like uh, an equal equity yeah, split. Everyone says don't do 50-50. Yeah. Everyone and, says you want to guarantee your, your star's going to fail, do 50-50. Totally. And, I, and I'm sure there's, you know, successful businesses out there. But I think also like the data shows that, you know, there are a lot of challenges to having a 50-50 split. And um, after learning that, you know, we were like, let's have like a legitimate conversation about this. And, you know, after learning what we've learned, um, there's, you know, a lot, of, a lot of pros to having not a 50 And how long y'all been doing this? For four years. Four years, okay. Mm-hmm. So here's something for you. Like, sure. when you first started, what's something you like really struggled with? Like, like really kicked your butt? But now you're like, man, how do I struggle with that? That's the simplest thing easily ever. Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. I would say... I mean, honestly, I think in the beginning, everything just felt like a scramble and like very not organized. And I think like I'm a, you know, I tend to be in my work, a very type A person, very strategic. And I, I think learning and entrepreneurship, like you can have the ideas and you can have the motivation, but if you don't have strategies and systems in place, like you'll never be able to handle the chaos. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned in all of this is like, you can have all of that, but without strategies and (laughs) and uh, systems in place, like you will fail. Um, and so I think in the beginning, we really struggled with setting up the systems and, and sticking by them, but it really has helped us with like the day-to-day challenges to the smallest challenges, the biggest challenges is, is like, yeah, this is how we would handle this situation and challenge. And are you a co-founder doing this full-time? Or are you still like working real jobs, so to speak? Yeah, so, I mean, I say that I am a full-time founder, but I am still um, working a job as well. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Um, so next, how do you deal with what I call the unsexy part of being an entrepreneur? Like the taxes, the bookkeeping, all the stuff nobody wants to do, right? Oh my God. But, but you don't have totally. enough money to hire someone yet, right? So how do you handle that? Yeah. Um, so luckily we have hired a bookkeeper and she's very affordable and she's a great communicator and very on top of her stuff. And I think it, that was one of the best um, investments that we've done. All the other stuff. I mean, I think what I just keep thinking is that, um, the things I don't want to do help me to do the things that I do want to do. And I think that's probably one of the best like mindset philosophies I've ever adapted. And I, I adapted that mindset even before I became um, an entrepreneur. And it just has been reinforced um, now being a startup entrepreneur because there are, I think the, the misconception about doing startup and doing entrepreneurship, like everyone these days wants to have their own company, but they don't understand like all the blood, sweat and tears that goes into it and all the very, very, very unsexy parts that go back into it. Um, but at the end of the day, is this helping me to achieve my goal and to live out the purpose and the service that I want to give and the impact that I want to give into the world and leave on this planet before I leave? Um, and it does, you know, doing all those like minute, boring things. And uh, what gives me hope is that one day I'll be able to delegate that stuff <laughs> to someone else. <laughs> and so your app is on Android and iOS? Correct. So did you release on both at the same time or you, or you chose one first? Yeah. So that's a good question because I think a lot of times people were like, oh, you should experiment with iOS before you do Android. Um, and I was very opposed to that because I didn't want to ostracize anyone in our community. So we did um, release both at the same time. However, um, on our second 2.0 version, we did actually change the language so that we can just write one code mm-hmm. that works for both iOS and Android. And that was probably the best suggestion that I got from um, someone who consults for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember that app? Uh, it was real popular in COVID called Clubhouse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember. I, I, they it was were, only they were, for iOS. Yeah. Only yeah. iOS. And yeah. they, I think they fucked up when they did that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I can understand why, you know, but man, like, and then, you know, people copied them. And by the time they were like, a yeah. done deal, right? Totally. I'm sure Clubhouse is still out there, but like, I don't know anyone use it anymore. For sure. 
Okay. Yeah. And like, who knows, right? I mean, I think there's so many waves of adoption. There's like mm-hmm. obviously early adopter adopters. There's people who are skeptical and like need to have some sort of friend who's going to pull them in. And then there's people who are super, super late adopters. And until, you know, the majority of masses, then they'll adopt the technology. Yeah. You know, there's different. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a thing called Ford. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, I forgot. Kind of cycle thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so for your app, did you and your co-founder tell the company what tech stack you wanted or you let them pick the tech stack? They picked the tech stack, which, you know, now knowing what I know, I would have obviously chosen the tech stack. But then the second version that we did, um, we chose the tech stack because we knew we wanted to. And how did you go about doing that? Um, With choosing the tech stack. We have someone who consults us um, or helps us consult um, for the tech. Since, you know, we both come from a nursing background and, you know, we can only do so much research. But having someone who's been through what we've been through is helpful. So thinking to, to the future, right? Suppose, you know, you got a lot of funding. And of course, I'm guessing right now the apps are kind of basic, right? But in your mind, like, you know, fantasizing, what do you want the app to do? Yeah. Um, I want the app to be the all-in-one place for our community to find all the resources. So community, housing, jobs, everything all in one platform. I mean, whether that's us building it out or we have strategic partners for that, um, that is what I really want. I want us to be an empowering platform where we can dispel a lot of the misinformation about our industry because especially with social media and things like that, there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, why do different agencies pay different, you know, pay rates or whatnot, or why do some hospitals pay different pay rates or this is what the market looks like or whatever it may be. I think there's just a lot of misinformation. I think coming from and being able to lead in even just like content creation with, I always view content in three different categories, educational, inspiring, or entertaining going to be one of those three things whenever we create content and I really want to be a leader in that um, within our company just because um, it's coming from a firsthand experience rather than a third party and um you have a small team so you might might not be able to do this yet but like are you able to track like how long you used to stay in your on your app like what the churn is all that kind of stuff yeah we definitely do study you know the different like how many minutes people stay on and then obviously like the monthly active users, weekly active users, all that. I would say like, so our monthly active users right now are about 20%. Um, I don't know what industry standard is, but I, you know, I obviously am constantly trying to figure out like, how do we get users to come back? I don't need users to come back for a long amount of time. I'm not trying to build, you know, an addictive social media platform, right? Um, That's just not part of our business model or our goal. But how do I creates so much value that they want to come back and there's, you know, resources that they can use, or maybe it's going to be like group messages that they're going to come back and use the technology for, or we collaborate to, you know, have agencies provide some sort of, you know, value on our app as well. There's a lot of different, you know, avenues that I'm thinking about right now. What tool do you use to track all this? Um, We just use Google analytics right now. yeah. Yeah. And so like, here's a question for you, right? So Google analytics, they came out the new version, right? how were you able to learn the new version? Because it seemed like the new version is like kicking a lot of people's ass, right? Mm-hmm. In, in what aspect? And it's just like this, like, it's like old Google Analytics was kind of easy to use, kind of simple. Mm-hmm. It's like the new ones are kind of hard. Like, you just something you, y'all just taught yourself to do or do you take a, a, a lesson or a class or something? You just like figured it out. Yeah, you know, what's really funny is like looking back in the very, very early days, we were like drawing our wireframes on a piece of paper, like literally printing out like, this is a phone and this is this button. <laughs> we like studied tons of apps and things like that. And obviously there's technology um, that helps you do that um, and websites and stuff these days. But, um, 
you know, I think that's, that's probably, you know, one of our downsides is like, we don't do UX UI. And obviously there's so much that goes into the user experience and, um, obviously user experience is gonna, so important. So important. And so so I think, you know, as we continue to build like new features and things like that, we obviously have to be like 10, 20 steps ahead to figure out like how everything's going to come into play. Um, and I think that's, one thing also like our users never realize is like how much goes into the tech of like, I can never look at technology now the same way because I'm like examining over analyzing mm-hmm. like every single button, yep. every single workflow. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and like just the fact that everything is so much more complex than, yeah, than the like, end user. Yeah. Like you see like a web page, right? People don't realize it's probably like 10,000 lines of code for one web page, totally. you know, or yeah, it's a challenge, right? Um, yeah. So for the app, what is it? So is there like a, is the plan like go like international with it? We've definitely been requested a few times to go international. Um, there's a lot of Canadian nurses that actually travel nurse here in the U.S. Um, and I don't think there's as many that would go like the other way mm-hmm. just because travel nursing in Canada is very high paying. It's usually in rural places. Um, but you can travel nurse in Australia, New Zealand, Abu Dhabi. There's like tons of places internationally that you can. Um, but I think we would probably have to see like a pretty big surge of like need before we even like do that. And for me, I want to dom- make sure we dominate yeah. like the U.S. market before yeah. we go international. But I'm definitely not opposed to it. Okay. I think that would open up like huge opportunities for us. And so you have like service providers on your app, right? Service provider, like in what way? Yeah, like just people like uh, like um, like staff agencies, stuff like that. We, so our app doesn't, totally cater towards the staffing agencies right now. Um, but we partner up with them for like in-person events and things like that. But we just like, they're not allowed to be on our app because our app is really supposed to be a for the clinician. Okay. All mm-hmm. right. Um, and then how are you paying for this? Like, I guess you're doing ads or something or how's that working? Yeah. So we have bootstrapped it up to this point and we ran one Kickstarter campaign three years ago, um, just for some, a little tiny runway. Um, and how we monetize is through advertisements, um, through sponsored meetups and events, our camp that we host, and then any affiliate marketing with any of our partners and our resources. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so you bootstrap so far? Yeah. Talk about the challenges of being a bootstrap entrepreneur. I mean, I'm working, you know, I've worked like two, three jobs, like for four years now, you know, it's like pretty exhausting. And, you know, there's lots of sacrifices of like my social life, of, um, and, and like I work most weekends, like for example, so my other job that I do, I work as a mobile IV nurse. And so the good thing is I don't have to work in the hospital. It's very flexible, but the work is very variable, right? Like I don't have a guaranteed paycheck of like, I'm going to make this amount of money every month or whatever it may be. It's pretty variable. And so those are sacrifices that I'm willing. Those are choices that I'm making because I do just trust that um, I'm sacrificing the, the short term stable paycheck to hopefully like build this empire. I'm really trying to build a generationally disrupting technology with what we're doing, with putting our community at the forefront of everything and and solving the social community aspect of it. Um, and that takes time, you know, anything that's generationally disrupting takes time. Yeah. So talk some about the pros and cons of being an entrepreneur from your experience. Um, I'll go cons first because I, I do think there's probably like less cons than there are pros in my perspective. Um, I think cons is definitely 
the very beginning of startup is just you don't get paid for the work that you're doing, right? Like I can't even count the amount of hours that I've poured into this already and haven't been paid for it. And I think that's a misconception too. Like tons of my friends that are like, oh my gosh, you don't have to work in the hospital anymore. I'm like, this is a choice. I'm not getting paid for this yet. Like I'm just choosing not to have that paycheck yet. Um, but, and then the other side is definitely the financial stress. I think that's probably one of the biggest stressors is, you know, when we're still, we do generate revenue, but we're not net positive yet. We're still net, a little bit negative and, you know, but that's expected with any like early stage startup company. And so I think that is always just like, you know, if we have really big payments that we have to do like for a camp or whatever it may be. Like I do have to pour in, you know, a couple thousand dollars here and there into the business and it sucks. You know, I need to have some like not only my emergency fund, but also some like surplus so that I can help to buffer anything that we have to make payments for. And so I think financial stress is definitely, you know, has impacted my mental health a lot, um, has, you know, I've lost many nights of sleep, but um, I think going into the positive sides now, um, I have really developed like my personal development, like out of this world, like I've grown so much as a person and it's really helped me to become more risk tolerant, which now at this point, I'm like, yeah, I have a lot of fears and doubts, but I've been able to do such hard and challenging things like what next could I do? You know, like gives you a sense of confidence and self-respect that's like unmatched. <laughs> how do you deal with those days when like everything goes wrong, right? Oh, like, everything goes wrong. Almost every day. Right. Yeah. How, do you, how do you deal with that? <laughs> um, you know, it's anywhere from having a good cry session because I would be <laughs> lying if I don't cry. I cry a lot and I, you know. I will say like crying is healthy. I think as humans, we need to cry more. It's just energy release. Um, so whether that's like crying and just having like a really good moment of like, I just re need to release this energy and then pick myself up and, and go. Um, or it is like talking to someone who can give me a pep talk of like, especially when I'm having those moments of like, what am I doing this for? Is this even going to be worth it? Who am I to do this? Um, or it's just, I call it self therapizing. I do have a therapist and I've had a consistent therapist for two years now. Um, aside from, you know, leaning on my support systems and friends, family, my therapist um, of self-therapizing of like when I'm having those questions of like, who am I to do this? Now my counter, my challenging thought is like, instead of saying, why me? Why not me? You know, if it's not me, like I have a lot of, you know, unique perspectives. I have a lot of unique, um, you know, passion and drive for doing this. If, if, you know, clearly no one has tried to take this on themselves. So like, why not me um, to do this? And so I think a lot of times it just depends on the day. Um, I am a self-care queen. <laughs> a lot of my <laughs> friends will say that I am. And so a lot of the times, like I, again, being more introverted, like I need recharge time. I need to be by myself. I need to reflect. I need to be introspective. Um, I need to get a massage. I need to move my body. I need to get outside. Um, I need to go on a backpacking trip or a one-nighter or a hike or whatever it may be. Like, um, I'm constantly learning how to not reach burnout and to, you know, build those things in so that I can continue to work sustainably. That's so, a constant lesson. <laughs> so speaking about burnout, we talk about nurse burnout, like, and we talk about, you talk about some for your self-care, but like, how do you recognize your approach to entrepreneurial burnout? How do you stop it? Totally. I mean, I, I will say that I'm approaching it right now. And I think, you know, I'm really taking this opportunity of the end of the year when everybody is slowing down to really slow down. Because normally I would say, oh, everyone's slowing down. This is take my a, time take to, advantage. Yeah. Take advantage of this. Yeah. Yeah. But because I'm, you know, 
feeling like my tank is very, very depleted right now. I'm, you know, despite wanting to lean into almost like toxic hustle culture, I'm leaning into being coming, like leaning into my soft side, leaning into everyone loves to talk about like a soft era right now. I'm like, I probably won't see my soft era for like another <laughs> decade. <laughs> but um, I, I'm just, you know, building those little tiny moments throughout the day, like after this, I'm going to go walk in the park with my friend and see sunset, you know? And so I think it's just building in those times when my brain can trick it, trick myself into thinking like, oh, you don't have time for that. You have a never ending to-do list, da, da, da. But if I want to get through my never ending list, I need to make sure I take time for myself. What's a typical day like for you? Like you wake up before in the morning, meditate, go to the gym, like, oh, does it change daily? Yeah, um, definitely depends on the day. If I am going to, you know, work my mobile IVs, that looks a little bit differently, but my mornings pretty much looks pretty similar. So depending on when I need to wake up, I wake up anywhere from 5.30 to, I would say, 7.30, um, depending on the day. I have, I love to be part of the 5 a.m. club. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really do love the mornings. And for me, I've like made it, I've ritualized my mornings and have made it this sacred time where this is my time to set up the foundation for the rest of the day so that I can handle any challenges, any, any chaos that comes in my day. And so I really need to fill my cup before anything else. And so I have an abbreviated version of my mornings and then I have a very short version of my mornings. And usually the, the short version of my mornings is meditation and working out. Um, even if it's like a 20 minute stretch session or it's a 30 minute to one hour lifting session like I need to get my body moving in the morning because it just helps everything else and then meditation is just and you said you work seven days a week or you take weekends off or day off the uh, week yeah so this month actually I I am after this weekend I'm going to be taking Fridays and Saturdays off mm -hmm. and trying not to schedule anything else but historically I usually um, only take one one day off if I'm lucky but you know, that's where burnout comes in and, and I'm trying to build it in where I don't reach that. Um, but usually I work startup Monday through Friday um, and then I'll work my mobile IVs the weekend and maybe one weekday. Yeah, for me, it worked out like this and it's, it's insane, right? So somehow it's worked out where I take a half day Friday, half day Thursday, I pretty much work all day Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I actually don't mind working the weekends because um, aside from events that happen, I don't mind doing my groceries, my errands and stuff during the weekdays oh, yeah. when it's, everyone's it's, it's, at work. It's so much better. It's so much better. It's so much better. I hate crowds. I hate it's, it's lines. So much, it's so, so much better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Much so better. I don't mind sometimes working on the weekends. But of course, you know, like I usually try to keep my evenings free so mm. I can still yeah. go to social events. Mm. And then I don't mind working like the daytime, you know. So speaking of social, social events, talk about networking. What kind of networking do you do? Yeah, so that's actually something that I've been very heavily um, prioritizing this, you know, season of life only because, um, you know, I really feel I'm a strong believer of like collaboration over competition. And I want to see like, who can I, uh, excuse me, who can I help and then who can help me? And, um, but also from like a gen genuine place, right? I think a lot of times like the, the problem I have with networking, it just feels like very transactional a lot of times. And I don't like that. I like building genuine relationships with people. And um, I'm fascinated by humans. I clearly love like human psychology and like, you know, the brain and neuroplasticity and all that stuff. And um, I think connecting on a personal level outside of, you know, the work of what you're doing, that's what I really want to, to help out with. And I think 
now having been in the startup space here and being part of like two accelerators here and I'm like tapped into a lot of different networks is like who's only there to, you know, advance their business. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you can easily tell. The thing that's good, you can easily tell usually. Yeah, you can tell. And I, I will say, I do think I have pretty high EQ and I think it is like really easy to tell like who's only there to, you know. So what's some of your go-to networking events here in Seattle? Founders Live. Shout yeah. out to Founders Live. Have you, I've have pitched... You, yeah, I pitched it last year. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I pitched in um, October of 2020 in the height of the pandemic. Oh, I pitched virtually from Oahu. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Working as a travel I nurse. think I did mine August of last year. Nice. Yeah, I, I love Nick. Yeah. Nick is wonderful, and I think what he's created has been so powerful, especially it was crazy. internationally. He, yeah, he did it so fast, too. Like, yeah. He went from, like, it used to be called Future Fridays. Future Fridays, like, yeah. at a rework. Like 30 people and I was like worldwide, different cities. That's insane what he did. Yeah, exactly. It's been it's been really cool to just watch Founders Live grow. And it's like not even tech, you know, it's like whatever industry you want to be in, you can go pitch. And I think it is obviously really powerful too to convey your idea to other people, right? And then you get, you know, connections to mentors, investors, maybe like potential co-founders or people who want to just like help to or maybe like users, you know, um, or customers that give you good insights. So Ooh, thing of mentors, who are your mentors? Yeah, um, so my mentors kind of, you know, ebb and flow along the way. Like right now, I think I do have some mentors um, that are in the founder space, but I also have mentors who, I mean, I really view my mom as my mentor a lot of times. That sounds like so cheesy, but <laughs> um, so whether that's like in the tech space, I'm actually looking to build out a board of directors which is really crazy that up to this point, I don't have a board of directors, which just is something that I've like held off on. Um, but I really feel like in building in mentorship, like for me, at least, it's not only the business aspect, like do they care about me as a person too, right? And so like two of my mentors right now, um, they're part of a traveling agency, but Lebin, um, as well as Justin, they're part of Lead Health. Like they've been very helpful for me professionally and also personally and just, you know, really being there for me. And then are you mentoring anyone? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I love mentoring people. I did a lot of nursing school and as a nurse. Um, right now, I'm not really mentoring anyone, but I'm very open to it. I actually would love to build in like mentoring as part of our business model as well. Um, but I'm not currently mentoring anyone. Okay. Yeah. So back to networking. Yeah. How do you balance networking and building a company, right? Because I think a lot yeah. of people like, they're like, you, like they're networking, networking, working, not building nothing. And all this time you have people like just like building, 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 not networking. Like how do you balance? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely finding that balance right now. I think one thing I think a lot about is like if I go to all these events, but I'm doing no absolutely no work, what is the point? And then, yeah, same thing is vice versa. Um, for me, um, my cadence that I'm trying to experiment with is I just need to go to one networking event a month. I, do, I think that's low commitment. Oh, yeah, that's wherever you're low, yeah. Very doable. I mean, in October, I, I think I went to like three or four events and I was like, that was too much. Because I, I, even like taking care of myself, like I need to. And also like sometimes when I'm exposed to that many people, like I, I don't give myself the space to think about, you know, the conversations that I had or to even build or take action on any of the suggestions. You know? And so for me, it's like pretty important to take that time. Yeah. So you said you've been at two accelerators. Mm -hmm. What were what, 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 what yeah. those? So WTIA and then Venture Out. What, what's the second one? I haven't heard that Venture one. Venture Out. Yeah. Yeah. So Venture Out was created by um, a former startup. He, he had like exited his startup um, and it was a paid 
paid one. And I think I was in their first cohort. So I was actually one of their crazy ones. Um, I did two accelerators at the same time. So I was in WTIA and Venture at the same time. Yeah, you, you know what? You said when I got a mental health test or something. What to do? Yeah, seriously. I was so unwell. That led into my summer where I was super unwell. So, you know, I do like to push the boundaries, but I'm starting to learn, you know, like my boundaries of, you know, I can go really hard, but I need to off balance that with like taking care of myself. So, um, so yeah, Venture Out was really cool. It was much shorter. I want to say it was, you know, it was a while back, but um, I want to say it was Is probably- Is that here in Seattle also? Yeah, so it was based here in Seattle. I mean, it was still virtual. So who runs um, that? I've never heard of that. I want to say, I'm forgetting his name right now. I'm, I'm feeling really it's embarrassed called Venture right Out. now. Venture Out, yeah. Okay. I'm forgetting his name right now, but um, I want to say his last name's back. Okay. I want to say, but- and I'm happy to, you know, link it to it. Um, Sean, Sean's okay. back, I want to say. Um, but yeah, we were part of their first cohort and, you know, there was a payment to get into it, but they didn't take any equity. I wanted to make sure we were not going to be in an accelerator that took equity. Um, and uh, yeah, it was like, I, I really always describe being an accelerator as like entrepreneurship on steroids. Like that just is what it feels like. Yeah. I was studying all the time and learning new things. Um, my friends are always like, how do you know so much about, you know, like fundraising <laughs> or tech or like how to format a business? I'm uh, like, well, it's all these tech accelerators and I'm not even like perfect at those things. But I, I know a little bit about a lot of things, but enough to take action. And, and I think that's the beautiful thing. And I think like even you asked me the question before, like people who want to get into entrepreneurship or tech or whatever it may be, like it feels like you have to have everything mapped out. You don't. You Figure it out on the way. Yep. If you keep waiting until you're ready, you're never going to be ready. Yeah, you're never gonna get started. I still don't feel ready. <laughs> like, yeah. and I've been four way, years yeah. in this, you know? I know. You just keep learning. And I think everyone's so scared to fail or make mistakes or look stupid. Like, you will. And that's just part of the journey. Like, take your ego out of it. You're not that cool, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're all just figuring it out. And, like, we need more people taking more action and, like, figuring things out, putting beautiful things into the world. Um, it's okay if like you make a mistake or you fail, like fail fast. So talk about how like through the years you've improved your storytelling of what you're oh, doing. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've been on a lot of podcasts. I've been um, asked on a lot of interviews. And I think one thing that I've learned a lot in entrepreneurship is like when you're pitching, it is storytelling. How can you connect whoever you're talking to, to your story? And um, I do think I'm a very passionate person in general um so people can kind of see from like the tone of my voice and I like to use my hands and <laughs> and stuff like that and I will get loud with certain things um I think people have realized you know when you connect it to a personal personal thing people then can tell that you're passionate about something but I think along the way even like preparing for founders live you know Melissa I don't know if Melissa helped you with yeah. like storytelling yeah. but I think that was super helpful and I also had hired um, a, another pitching coach as well that helped me um, with like my spine alignment and like like physiological things I didn't even realize that was helpful. Um, but I really do just feel like in general, like public speaking, right? Like what a great skill to have and even being super introverted. I'm never comfortable, you know, public speaking, but it is a skill that I want to work on. And um, I was able to speak at my convocation when I graduated nursing school, I came back as an alumni speaker. And then at this like really big conference in September for traveling healthcare professionals, I've spoken three times. And 
every time I'm still nervous, but it just is something that I want to learn how to do better. And, you know, I think um, if you want to create something in the world, like being able to communicate that effectively is something you need to learn. So, so this is kind of funny. So I'm, I'm an INFJ, right? Introvert, introvert. Yep. But I actually love, I actually like getting in front of people talking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But my thing is like, I cannot rehearse in front of everyone, right? Oh yeah, sure. I, I, I sure. cannot. Like if someone said, you know, I'll give you a billion dollars to rehearse for me. I'm like, no, like, <laughs> I, I, I cannot do it for some reason. Do you feel reason. self-conscious? Self-conscious, okay. yeah. Especially if someone Sometimes I, I do too. Especially if someone I know, like sure. once we rehearse, like there's no way. Sure, you're like, but, how are they going to judge me? Yeah. And, but in front yeah, of a crowd, yeah. I don't know. I don't know these motherfuckers, right? <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm never going to see them again. <laughs> exactly, right? They just say what I got to say. Sure. Everyone says a good job, yeah. Sure. But, but public speaking is like a skill I think everyone needs to have, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, I'm sure you've heard of Toastmasters. That's mm-hmm. actually something I really want to get into of like, I just want to get used to talking. And um, as someone who's like very introverted, I'm very used to like not communicating a lot of times and I'm very comfortable doing that. But I do want to continue communicating, having conversations, learning how to relate to people or learning. Even if you can't relate to people, how can you have a conversation with someone? That's something I'm actually trying to actively work on with like, if I can't find common ground, how can I still have an effective and passionate conversation with no, too. Like, like I put on a lot of events. Like, I did a pitch competition in July in Tacoma. I did two panels for Tacoma Startup Week. So I'm going to put on events. Cool. But, like, but if I'm the one in the crowd networking, yeah, it's, it's a done deal for me. Like, <laughs> I'm not talking to no one. It's like, if I know y'all talk to you, like, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. So I definitely have to, like, have control, so to speak, right? Yeah. And I think for me, too, like, I'm not good. I don't like, not that I'm not good because I could do it. I don't like small talk. Oh, yeah. I think it's, like, fluff. Yeah. I don't need to how's talk. The, how's the weather? Yeah. I'm oh, like, oh, it's, it's, it's how's the football team doing? You yeah. Know? Um, I don't love small talk. And I like, I prefer to have either like one-on-one conversations yeah. or like smaller like, like conversations. A, like a more right? deep conversation. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> my, my best friend will always joke. Like my favorite question is like, what's your relationship with your mom? Or like, who <laughs> hurt you? <laughs> you know, like questions that everyone like, 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 whoa. <laughs> they're like, like whoa. that's too deep. <laughs> like, whoa. I just met you a second ago. <laughs> totally. But like, and obviously that's like a, an ongoing yeah. joke that we have, yeah. but that's like things that I care about. Like who, how, what experiences made you mm. who you are? That's what I really care about. Right. Like, because then that gives me so much more insight about what you care mm. about, what you live for, what lights you up, what fuels your fire. Like those are things I care about, you know, and like, how can I help you on, on that? How can yeah. I help you accomplish your dreams? You know? And I really feel like that's what humans really want is to just like be part of something bigger. Um, when we feel like meaningful and fulfilled. So how do you, how do you go about finding like new networking opportunities? Mm-hmm. I mean, just like by meeting new people, right? Yeah. Like even right now I'm being invited to new events. Um, I think what is really juxtaposed in like what I'm learning right now is like, I really do go to a lot of tech events, but that doesn't like fuel my fire as much as like going to like outdoors events. Like I, I got invited to this like snow wish for snow party or something tomorrow where you know we're kicking off snow season even though I don't do snow sports anymore and um you know I think just being exposed to like a lot of different types of people and I think that's the biggest thing going to these tech events like I'm always you know seeing the same people and whatnot and like I don't always want to talk about work you know I want to talk about my other interests I want to like get out and do stuff it's like not always about business and I think Um, One thing I'm really grateful for is like I was like when my mom, you know, she really shaped me to be this well-rounded person. And maybe it was an innate or maybe it was the environment she put me in. But I really have always been well-rounded and I want to continue doing that. I don't always just want to be like the one thing. 
um, throughout my life. So what's your advice for new entrepreneurs? New, I mean, like they have an idea, they've done nothing else, right? Mm -hmm. What's your advice to them? Yeah, I mean, really just um, validate, you know, validate the idea, do customer service, or excuse me, customer research um, and validation. And then also um, sussing out the, sussing out the competition and then also ideating and innovating um, outside of that to see how can you solve the solution better than, than what is already provided. How long do y'all spend on ideation and customer discovery? I personally think, and I, this was taught to me in one of my accelerators, customer discovery never stops. Even if you have an end product, you're, you obviously like, unless it's, you know, an e-commerce product, like you're always going to be ideating and innovating and like making things better. And hopefully you're always talking to your end user or customer to see what is working, what's not working, what do they want, what do they don't want, um, because things get stale, especially technology. And so um, for me, I pride myself on constantly talking to our community, constantly talking to our customers and seeing like what they want. I have this never ending list that I, I probably will never get to the end of, yeah. um, of like features they want and, you know, problems that they want us to solve. And so, and I'm grateful for that because if I didn't, I, you know, I wouldn't be a good entrepreneur. <laughs> So what's something you first started out in your mind? You're like, my customers are going to want this, no doubt. But then you learn the customers won't have nothing to do with that. Mm, that's a good question. Um, I, can I answer it the other way? One yeah. thing that I, so yeah. one thing that I, I personally really didn't want to do, but our customers did want um, was dating off of our app. So I was very opposed to dating, <laughs> like oh, building wow. and dating. Okay. But after like researching so much, so many more pain points about like what our community encounters dating and romantic relationships was something that was a really big pain point because we're moving around as frequently as you know every three months um the the misconception is just because we're moving around we're not looking for something serious when most people are actually looking for to, to work towards something serious and um i think you know definitely the the location of like not being in one place is pretty difficult but it's been really cool to see people who are traveling healthcare professionals come together and they get to live this lifestyle together now um and i was very resistant to doing that is there a risk over that i haven't a dating app like sexual harassment all that kind of stuff yeah i mean definitely we've encountered some people not some people and when i say some people we've had two occurrences that i've had to deal with and those are definitely things that i never even thought of like handling as a ceo but i definitely have like a zero tolerance for those types of things so how can we best to mitigate that how can we build safer features on the app. So whether that's like blocking reporting, um, us having a better due diligence with like researching on our back end to intervene with however we need to intervene, but also educating like, hey, there's certain things and this is actually an upcoming blog post that we're writing is um being safe with like meeting strangers online, right? Obviously like stranger danger is still a thing. Um, but you know, meet people for the first time in a public setting, meet them like at least for me personally, especially as a female, like I have multiple friends that follow my location here in Seattle. So they always know where I am. Yeah. And if they don't hear from me, they can, you know, they can SOS me or whatever it may be. Um, I think like telling obviously one other person in your area yeah. where you're going to be as well is helpful. Um, but just like, it sounds like common sense, but I think a lot of times too, like, especially younger generation, like my generation and younger, we're so used to meeting strangers online now that we like forget that there are could bad, be dangerous people, people too, bad people you know, there, yeah, doubt. that have like alternative motives or intentions. And so we do have to just like take these extra safety measures. How do y'all deal with customers? Like, do they have like a 
direct line to your email? Can it text you? Like, how, how, how does the customer interaction work? Yeah. Um, so people can either, we get a lot of direct messages off of Instagram. Um, we do have an email that people can, um, you know, email us. And then people do email my email as well. Um, I personally do not like to give out my phone number unless it's, you know, a friend or personal. I just feel like business I want off of my phone yeah. okay. <laughs> so that it doesn't blow up my phone. Um, but, you know, I always make myself available for people if they want to talk to us. And we get luckily, I, I feel like our community is really good with giving us feedback. And um, I always one of my philosophies in business, is you always lead with love and gratitude. And so. Anytime, even if someone's complaining about something or they don't like something or something negative happened, I always say, lead with thank you. Thank you for bringing this up to me. Thank you for bringing up this concern. Thank you for reaching out. Um, because if if you didn't bring it to me, how am I supposed to know? How can I intervene? How can I change things, right? And so I'm always really grateful for people communicating with us. This next one is kind of a deep question. Okay. How does your startup fail? <laughs> how does my startup fail? That's a good question. Um, I think my startup fails because we haven't cracked the secret sauce to our monetization model yet. Um, I mean, I would argue that people in early stage startups are going to be figuring out their monetization model. Um, and I think we're going to be probably one of those companies that has like 20 different monetization models, just like Yelp does or something like that, um, just because of the nature of what we do. Um, and then I think the other way my startup fails is that we don't have someone tech yet on our team. but. The other side of that is I've been able to put two working functioning app, apps out without having someone tech. And clearly we're doing something right with our traction. The next follow up, how does your company succeed? Um, how do our company succeed is that um, we've, I just spoke to it, like traction. We've been able to build such um, great traction without like spending $1 on advertising and I think that's just a testament to one, solving the pain point really, really well. Um, and then two, communicating that in an effective manner. And for us, like we're huge with transparency. We're huge with being vulnerable and I think um, and being super genuine. And I think our community knows that um, and knows that we're building from that firsthand perspective and that respectful place of we're building to protect you and advocate for you and empower you. You talk about this a little bit already, but how do you decide what to say no to? Like opportunity wise. Yeah. Yeah. Anything networking opportunities. Ugh. Saying no is I, I think that's that's such a great question because I do feel like what's what you're saying no to, you're saying yes to something else, right? And then and vice versa. And I don't think we think about that duality a lot of the times. And even when it comes to like me deciding to go to an event or not, I have learned now through many, many years of being a people pleaser of like over committing myself and then regretting, oh my gosh, I really wish I had this day or to rest. I have to do this because I might be an opportunity. Right. Or my or feeling obligated or whatever it may be. I think like, you know, I mean, that's the co concept of like FOMO, right? But I will argue like, what about the joy of missing out, you know? And like for me, if I know I'm in alignment with taking care of myself or, you know, viewing something as like, oh, this is a great um, networking opportunity or whatever it may be, um, just making sure I like, plan things out to take care of myself since I know I can't best show up to something that I know is going to be a little bit more taxing if I don't take care of myself. And so for me, I, I, I'm more hesitant to overcommit myself to things these days than, than I used to be when I was younger and didn't learn that lesson. Luckily I've learned that lesson enough now. Um, 
But, you know, I think it's hard, especially being an entrepreneur and being super passionate and, and like overzealous about life in general, you know, it is really easy to be like, oh, my gosh, that sounds so cool. I want to go to that thing or, you know, yeah. I want to meet that person or whatever it may be. But um, understanding we have limited time and energy. And I think that helps to speak to whatever your values are is what you're saying yes to. So what's your sleep like? Sleep eight hours a day, I two hours a day? Sleep. <laughs> um, I probably sleep anywhere from eight to sometimes even 10 hours. I slept okay. 10 hours a day because okay. I was jet lagged. <laughs> so, um, and I, I really think it's like, we were talking about unsexy things. Sleep is a very unsexy thing, but that's something that I've prioritized into my life the last, I would say two years is trying to like really work on my sleep hygiene, really setting up my night routine. And I really feel like, like you set up for your day the day before. You know, like what you're eating, how you're sleeping, how you're exercising, like all those things. And I feel like if I want to be a high performing, achievable person, like I need to work on these like habits that really like set the foundation for my health. Um, I mean, I can be a super unhealthy entrepreneur, but I won't be able to be an entrepreneur for much longer. Right. So I'd rather do this for decades to come and live hundreds. <laughs> and how do you, your co-founder communicate? You have like daily Slack meetings. It's just text all day long. How y'all communicate? Yeah. So we do anything from text messages to we do, we used to do a lot of Zoom calls. Um, but those are probably the two things that we do. Mm. And how do you all decide like split different functions up? Like who does marketing? Who does the tech stuff? Like how do you all decide to split that up? We have a lot of overlap a lot of times, but I think it just like we play into our strengths, which I think is like probably a, another great tip for entrepreneurs is like know where your strengths are. And that, that means like learn what it is first, and then you can communicate that and, and figure that out with your co-founders. All right. So you already talked about your company some, but can you go more detail, like how it got started, what sure. you're focused on now, what your big dream super business is moving forward? Yeah, for sure. So I'll go back to origin story. So I am originally from New York. I moved to um, the West Coast. I went to California first. I was there for almost a whole year, and I had first gone to this super small hospital in Napa, California. And then I went to San Francisco. And when I went to San Francisco, I was so excited to connect with the community, but was having trouble connecting with people. So I ended up, um, you know, trying to figure out how to solve my own problem of loneliness. And so was going to create a website. And then a friend in good Silicon Valley fashion was like, well, why don't you create an app? And I was so intimidated by creating technology as a bedside nurse that I sat on the idea for seven months, went to this big traveling healthcare conference in September of 2019. And then um, I ended up meeting my business partner there. And then after that conference, I was so inspired by meeting like thousands of traveling healthcare professionals choosing to live this non-traditional lifestyle that I was like, I need to figure out how to bring these people together on a more regular basis. So let me try to validate the idea, do customer discovery. And so my business partner was the first person that I talked to. And that was in November, 2019. And um, after that, we just like hit the ground running and just like, taking one step out of another and just trying to figure it out. And what, what do you focus on right now? We are focusing right now. I'm looking to bring out a tech person. So anyone watching, if you're interested in joining my team, please come talk to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, bringing out a tech person and we are looking to fundraise hopefully in the next year. And then what's your like big dream vision for the company? Yeah, I want to be part of every single traveling healthcare like traveling healthcare professionals journey. So I want to be part of the hospital part of it, the agency part of it, and also every single user. Like I want to be embedded into that experience. So there's not a doubt that um, you can find community no matter where you are. And we're the overarching, you know, part of the well-being experience. All right. The next one would be kind of personal, but 
talk about the challenges, advantages, pros and cons of being a female entrepreneur. Oh my gosh, and more yeah. specifically, like an Asian female entrepreneur. Totally. I mean, it's like double minority, right? Like I'm already disadvantaged um, historically from that front. I mean, there's been many times where I've walked into rooms and I'm the only person of color. I'm the only female um, in the room. And I think especially in tech space when it's very, very predominantly male, um, there's been tons of times where either people don't. It's like the subtleties, right? Like people won't say the racist or sexist. It's like very swept under the rug. But um, and like in these microaggressions of like either people not making eye contact or not even having their like body face towards me and they'll be facing away from me or have their back turned towards me or not addressing me in calls um, or whatever it may be. Or, you know, I mean, I've had like conversations in in person where people, you know, like really say pretty like submissive things to me or, or things like that. And I think, you know, misogyny is very alive and well, but they're just in more subtle ways these days. And I think for me, I used to be in the place of, you know, I want to almost like prove them wrong and I want to have revenge and da da da. <laughs> and at this point I'm like, that's not even worth my energy. You know, I'm just going to let my work speak for myself. I'm going to let my passion speak for myself people who want to support me and like genuinely like want to support this business regardless of how I look or or want to amplify and understand that because of the way I look you know I am disadvantaged and want to help to like create that um, fill that gap cool everyone else they're just not my people and that's okay what's your advice to anyone who's like like the blank only the only blank in the room what's your advice to them um my advice for them is just be true to yourself and the people who need to be around you and who want to support you will come to you and everyone else. They don't matter. They don't matter. So when should someone not be an entrepreneur? Mm, that's a good question. I think if you want to only make money and that, and I think if you only want to make money, don't be an entrepreneur <laughs> unless yeah. you were to, you know, like open like a Dutch bros, like mm -hmm. chain. If you want to just do like a corporation chain, yeah. that's easy. Right. Cause that's like a proven model. But if you want to really create new solutions for problems that haven't been solved well, I think that's the basis of entrepreneurship, right? Yeah. You're creating new solutions for problems. Um, if you're very passionate about solving that problem or maybe the end user you're passionate about or, you know, disrupting industries, I think that's the real reason. You know, if you want to completely change your life, if you want to, like from the inside out, from the professional to the personal relationships in your life, um, if you really have that like internal drive. Cause I don't think you could be an entrepreneur also if you're externally driven. I mean, there's tons of people who, I mean, the WeWork person, like, you know, <laughs> very externally driven, yeah. um, you will crash and burn. Right. And I think, um, I, I, I don't think like success from, and I say success because everyone has a definition, but like financial success and, you know, um, and, and fame success and all that stuff it only amplifies the person that you are. It will never solve any of your voids or your problems. And so that's why I do feel like a lot of entrepreneurs um, really dive into personal development and, and the inner work that needs to be done because uh, entrepreneurship will challenge you every single way and every single, every single way, every single day <laughs> is what I always say. And there's like no, and you can internalize it and take it personally, or you can say, this is an opportunity for growth. This is an opportunity for me to, you know, really personally and professionally grow as a person. And what is this here to teach me? Because I think a lot of times we could be bogged down by like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. This is so hard. 
Uh, so yeah, if you um, really want to push your boundaries, I think then entrepreneurship is there for you. And if you really want to grow as a person, you can. Um, but I think if you're just motivated by, you know, being like the clout of being your own boss, mm-hmm. you won't make it because it's yeah. so much more than just having the cool title <laughs> and the business. <laughs> it's everything else. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely sucks sometimes. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, they always say, you know, don't quit, keep grinding, keep going. But so like entrepreneurs have like a red line where they don't cross, you know, like if I maybe a red line is like if I don't make profit in five years, I, I give it up. Or, you know, my red line is I'm not going to sell my car. Or my, you know, so entrepreneurs have red lines. Mm-hmm. Do they or, or should, should they? they? Should they? I personally think they shouldn't. I think that's putting that's like having a expectation and of like what the outcome is. And I just feel like entrepreneurship and startup is so unpredictable that having the like five years or, you know, not selling your car or whatever it may be. Obviously, everybody's situations are so different and financial situations, especially are so different. But I just feel like it's really hard to put a timeline on on something. I mean, and I think like that's probably one of the biggest struggles, too, is like it's not like you're saying, oh, I'm going to go back to school. And at the end of this really hard thing, get my degree. It's like I'm going to do this really hard thing and I'm hoping this is the outcome. But I don't know when this will happen. And I, I, time and time again, I mean, almost every single day I'm bogged down by like, when is it going to happen? When is it going to, when, when am I going to break through the other wall? And like, you know, when am, is the success going to come? But I think it all just goes back to like, I think this reason, this, like the reason why I haven't like hit certain successes is like, I'm supposed to be learning patience right now. I'm supposed to be learning like, and becoming the person I need to be to be the whatever xyz or to have the xyz you know like i need to be patient with the journey and i think that's the thing is like if you're only attached to the outcome of it you will never appreciate the journey and like it's so cliche but you have to enjoy the journey and i i really just love that i'm choosing this hard pathway no matter how much dread i'm feeling (laughs) (laughs) throughout the many many seasons of this journey is like i love who i'm becoming right now and i think that is the biggest thing with like the red line of like for me, my red line is probably not like timeline wise or like like material wise. It will be when I am not happy with who I am or who I'm like trying to become. If I'm like taking certain actions that don't align with who I want to be or who I, um, yeah, who I am proud to be, um, then I think it's it'll it'll be time for me to quit. But um, until that happens, like I'm just here to enjoy the journey, no matter how hard it is. Because this is this is forming me and shaping me in ways that I can't even fathom right now so talk about something you've learned during this process that you didn't, you didn't know before like you learned this like you thought like there's no way i can learn this like that's above my skill level but you're like now it's like a piece of cake to you mm, that's a good question hmm i think probably marketing is probably like a really big thing that i never thought that i'd be even good at but i am like pretty good at it and i think it's because marketing is all about relationships and like conveying your message to people and i think because I, I work very heavily on my communication in general um, that just translates into like my marketing piece of like, you know, the content we put out, everything from like visuals to, um, you know, written stuff. Um, and I think, you know, I never thought that I would be good at marketing. I always thought, you know, marketing is just for people who are trying to sell things and and whatnot. But it's really how how can you convey why this is important to the people you're trying to sell to? So talk about your markets. I know you do a blog. You do, do you do any of your content? Like you're like 
I know you, I saw your Instagram page. Mm-hmm. Like, are you on like LinkedIn make your videos, like Twitter doing stuff? Like talk about your marketing. Yeah. So our marketing is anywhere from definitely Instagram is our main platform. We're just shy of 10,000 followers. And, um, and, and yeah, I, I had said this before, like my three pillars are entertainment, inspiration, and educational. And are you doing this all by yourself? Um, no, luckily I have a very awesome, the way that we film content, I actually just had a content day on Wednesday is that we will always, um, ask traveling healthcare professionals to be in our content. So it's relatable. Um, and so I will usually do bulk creation cause it's just, I mean, I think it's a smarter way to, to create like massive amounts of content is that you just have these days and you set out this amount of time where you'll create, you know, dozens of pieces of content and then you get to slowly release that out um, rather than thinking every single day, what am I going to post? What am I going to post? You know, that's like one thing that I've learned um, doing this. And also like before I built my business, I was doing a bit of like um, influencer stuff. And so I just learned, you know, instead of just day by day, that's like obviously consistency is the game, right? Like consistency and discipline is like the most unsexy thing that, (laughs) that will lead you to everything you want to do. It sounds like it's so constricting, but that is like the magic key. That is like the secret sauce um, that I feel like most people um, don't have the patience to build those skills, but that is essentially how you succeed. I've like listened to dozens and thousands of like successful business people and it's all about consistency and discipline and in your habits and also um, in your business. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't or anything else you want to talk about? No, you, we have, this has been the most in-depth interview that I've had. So thank you um, for one, not only talking about business, because I think that can get boring to me yeah, if I'm saying yeah. the same thing over and yeah. over again. Um, so thank you for having me on. No worries. Um, yeah. Can you share your social media so people can reach out to you? Yeah. So our app is at MedVenture app on Instagram. And my personal one is ever evolving M. And then our website is MedVentureApp.com. And then you can also find us at MedVentureApp on both iOS and Android. So Emily, you give a lot of value, a lot of great advice. But can you give us any last minute advice on wisdom or anything you want to talk about? Hmm. Investing in yourself is never a waste of time or resources. It's the best investment you can make in life. Emily, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you. And remember to be great every day. Don't you know, pump it up